Colin's Last Stand Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. Knockback, in addition to the interview podcast series Fireside Chats and the weekly YouTube show dedicated to video games called SideQuest, is fan-funded over at patreon.com slash Stand. and without you, none of these shows would exist. If you like Knockback or any of what Colin's Last Stand does, please consider going to Patreon and showing your support. You can even get cool perks in return, like early access to shows, the ability to vote on future show topics, exclusive Q&As, and much more. Thank you for believing in Colin's Last Stand. Now, on to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty, as always. I'm joined by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. Hi, guys. Just kidding. Hi, guys. Oh, man. Hi, guys. You're really sticking with that. (laughs) I respect that. I respect it. You have to do what you have to do. I don't know how I stumbled upon greetings and salutations, but I... Uh, yeah, I always I meant to ask you that, actually. I don't know. I don't know when that happened or how it happened. It was just a comfort, natural thing. It's mine now. Uh, it's... To- who else? Who else? Who but you, I my fucking friend? dare someone else to say it. I think I'm going to go with... You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a different greeting with each batch. Okay. So this time I didn't... Wasn't very creative. I stuck with hi, guys. But you'll figure out, you'll watch some the more, next batch is definitely going to be something. You'll new. watch some more YouTube unboxing videos with your daughter <laughs> Absolutely. and find some other weird we work find. of the hosts <laughs> that you want to exploit <laughs> for your own purposes. Yeah. How are you today? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you doing? I'm good. We are, you know, as, as everyone knows, in Philadelphia for this round of recording. We just yeah. went to the supermarket, Giant. Giant. Got some boar's head pepper turkey, etc. Yeah. And guy almost gave you the wrong thing. Oh, I was a little I was a little, that guy was a little had a little bit of a gruff attitude, which I Yeah, really he was he, he was like, didn't he wasn't happy to be there. He was fresh. He was a little fresh. He was being fresh. He needed a bali. <laughs> <laughs> he needed a little bali. But and I hope we we grew up saying that word. I don't really know what it means. It could be like some heinous thing. Yeah, I hope not. We grew up with a lot of weird not for some reason, not we are legit Italian, but for some reason, our family like really butchered the Italian words that we used, which I only found out later when I met Italian people and I was constantly corrected. <laughs> so, yeah, who knows what we're saying? So, if we ever say something that's you know, God forbid, incorrect or rude or offensive, Baliad's actually a racial please slur. Forgi- please forgive us because <laughs> we don't we, we in, don't mean it that way. In 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 Moriarty or Ruggiero Italian, Baliad was like a smack on the ass, yeah. A spanking, if a you spanking, will. A spanking, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you were bad. You get out of here, you're going to get a baliad. I'm like, all right, mom. <laughs> this episode, Dagan, is all about PlayStation. PlayStation 1. We knew it as the original PlayStation. The moniker PSX was pretty popular for it in the 90s and early 2000s because that was the code name for the console. And we're going to get into the history of the PS1 here on this episode. But you, calling it PS1, which is what we started calling it when PS2 was announced in 1998, 1999. I wanted to ask you about this. Okay. Because you're the expert. Right. PS1 is actually a console in and of itself, the PS1. So there's. I'm just saying this because there's there, the monikers are confusing. PS1 is a console. That was like the miniaturized PlayStation. For people that don't remember it, it's PS and then O-N-E at the end of it in the That's lowercase letters. That's right. That was the re... That was like the PlayStation that came out in like 1999. What? That was like really small. That doesn't make any sense. Then why would Xbox do what they did? I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me. The Xbox One console, from many perspectives, doesn't make any sense. I think the name <laughs> That's is odd. the least of the concern of, of that I have anyway for it. Not a fan. Sometimes I still go back and watch the Xbox One reveal in like May of... Two, or two, yeah, May 2013. Just awful. 
It uh, really is one of those symbols of all they talked about was sports and Call of Duty and your cable box. It was amazing. They didn't care so, about any. It was so crazy. It's yeah. crazy how bad marketing can be sometimes. Yeah, that was all. Microsoft, Don- give me a call. I'll do a little side thing for you if you need some marketing help. That was all Don Matrick, who's who went to Zynga, which was after that, which was really a great move. Interesting. And, and then I know guys there. That that place apparently is stabilized, but it they, has. They, they're in the old Sega building in San Francisco. Oh, I didn't know that. And Sega had, you know, when Sega during when Sega was relevant, they had a, a massive headquarters in San Francisco, and Zynga bought that and moved in there. And then it's probably like a quarter full at this point. Because Zynga so, really ate so shit. sad. It is, although I don't know. I don't know that they were really doing anything worthwhile at that time. I don't actually know anything that they're doing now. So me neither. Who knows? But this is. You know, when I went to Dagan and asked him to kind of come up with the topics that we were going to do for this particular round, ooh, the mic's coming away from me. PS One was was one of the ones he came up with, and and it's I think it's a, a fun one to to talk about because it's such a paradigm shifting console for video gamers generally. It's a really really important console, a really relevant console. The brand is more relevant than ever. PlayStation is completely dominating, and has completely dominated for several years now. But its origins are a little more humble. And really interesting and spawned, interestingly, by Nintendo, as I'm sure many of you know. And so I want to get into all that. I want to get into the history of PS1. I want to get into when Dagan and I got our PS1s. I want to get into the best games on PS1. I want to get into the legacy of the console, how important it was, how important it is. All of that. And also, you guys have submitted a ton of questions, comments, you know, inquiries, memories for this particular episode. Remember, you can do that by supporting us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Stand. If you support us at the $2 level a month or higher, you will get early access to knowing what the topics are and then can submit your questions, comments, concerns, inquiries, memories, thoughts, etc. That's a lot of synonyms for the same thing. <laughs> now, Dagan. Yes, sir. Before we get into the history of PS1, I want to know if you remember when you became cognizant of this console. Yeah. Just from a, a bird's eye view for people that don't know, PS1 came out in Japan in December of 1994, and it came out almost a year later in September of 2000, or 2000, September of 1995 in the States, and I think just a little bit later in the year in Europe and Australia. And it's hard to think about now because we have not had a new console hardware manufacturer entrant into the market that succeeded since Microsoft with Xbox. But it was strange to see... a the duopoly of the video game industry between Sega and Nintendo at the time yeah. with some minor players. Sure. N- really minor in the States, but but your TurboGrafx PC slash PC yeah. engine. NEC. Your Neo Geos, etc. But no one can, Tiger Electronics and all that kind of stuff, but no one cared about any of that stuff. <laughs> I love that you put them in there. Well, they, you know, there was a like Simon's Quest Tiger Electronics game. I know there kind is. Of stuff. Do you have that? You don't have No, it. I never had any of those because oh. they were terrible. They were so bad. They're I knew people that LCD. had them, and, they, and I was like, why would you ever want this? But anyway, we can do another one on Tiger Electronics because it's really bad. That would be fun. But what is your memory of PlayStation? Like, when do you when did you find out about it? Okay. That's a, that's a really good question. I don't know if I thought about it going that far back, but it came out while I was in college. I left for college in 94, so it came out my, 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 fir- my second year of college was when it was released in North America. And at that time, I was in animation school and things were really busy. And I think I wasn't really even in tune with home console video games very much. I think where I was probably was, I remember I took my Super Nintendo with me to school. I took my Super Nintendo with me from New York to Philly and had it in my dorm. And I remember very specifically 
going through my Secret of Mana phase and our Final Fantasy 3 slash 6 phase. But I don't think we were even really into... We were so busy with, with school, with the demands of school. Animation school is pretty rigorous, you know, just as, you know, get you ready for a career in animation, you know, 24 drawings a second type thing. And I went to school for traditional animation, so it was really busy. I wasn't really paying atten- that much attention to what was going on with consoles or getting magazines. I used to get, um, I used to even subscribe, not subscribe, but I used to always pick up that Super, what was the name of that? I believe it was a European Super Nintendo magazine. Meme Machines? No. It might have had SNES in the title of it. Somebody out there may know. It was a great magazine, really high quality. I remember even being like completely out of it. I was more in tune with what was going on with the arcades because we would go to the arcade every day as a you know when we just needed to get a little stress out. So I was much more in tune with the arcade at that point. I think my first, my first sort of what look in the direction of PlayStation was my friend. Chris, who I grew up with on Long Island, uh, my friend Chris Swift, great guy and great artist, and we're still great friends today. He's still on the island. He went to school in Philly as well for animation, and he was talking about getting it. And I think that's when I started paying attention to it. And I believe I was telling you a little earlier. I believe Chris got it at launch, so that was the first time I was really paying attention to it. I guess he got it, and he got it in that September. It was September '95, right? Right, September 95. So he must have got it. In fact, I think we were away on summer break. And he was home on Long Island. And when he came back for the fall semester, he brought the PlayStation back with him. And that was my first. It was that. So it was out. And that was the first time I was like, oh, what? Because up to that point, of course, our whole context was Nintendo. You know, it was for some of my age, it was Atari 2600. For me, personally, anyway, because I didn't have any of the fancy or Intellivision, ColecoVision, or the Atari 5200 or whatever. So I had fair, the, You didn't have your Fairchild? Didn't have my Fairchild, Fairchild or my Vectrex. <laughs> so I had the VCS, and then I had the NES, and then I had the SNES, and then this was the first, this was the first foray outside of Nintendo for us. So it was really... And also the first, for me, it was the first disc thing. You know, as well. So it wasn't wasn't a cartridge based system. So that was it was actually out. I wasn't like fanning out or salivating over it or looking forward to it for a long time, reading about it in magazines. I was kind of out of the loop until it literally was in, before me, and that was the first recollection of it. Really, it's funny because I don't. I'm with you in the sense that we were so into Nintendo, yeah. you and I, and just like our circles. Obviously, your best friend PJ, who is playing prominently in a lot of these episodes, which is great because he's he's a funny character and <laughs> an important character in our past. But and this is all about our past, so that makes sense. He was a Sega Kai, a Sega kid. Big time. I was saying yeah. guy and kid at the same time, so it came out as Kai. <laughs> and so he he was kind of even well after we had a PS One, he was always my exposure to Saturn. He was my exposure to Dreamcast. I got a Dreamcast at launch, but he had a Japanese Dreamcast, as you remember correctly. So it was like yeah. a really he always was kind of ahead of the game. With that kind of stuff, and the Saturn obviously was terrible, but it was cool to be able to to play that. Actually, your old roommate Ducky is another guy who had Saturn, yes, he had, and he had Panzer Panzer Dragoon Saga, which was like a really cool game. And yes, he had he Shining did. Force or whatever and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I was I would get Nintendo Power in the mail. I had I got Nintendo Power probably from 1990 or 1989 through like 1997, something like that. That that was my exposure. And you and I, it's funny because you and I were talking at lunch that we didn't realize that this was a propaganda arm. Of no one knew that at the time, it probably wouldn't have been that hard to figure out, considering it, it was it was emblazoned with Nintendo stuff. It didn't seem to say anything bad about really anything, and but that was kind of whatever was in there was what we were concerned about. And I was playing Super Nintendo 
well into the PS1 and N64 era. I was engaged with N64. I, I had one. But I remember in the mid-90s that they'll lead up to what was being called Ultra 64 at the time. And that this new Nintendo cartridge-based console was going to come out. And we I, I wasn't that old. And I was, you know, I was like, you know, 12, 13. And the technology was, as it is still to this day, totally irrelevant to me. Like, I don't care about any of this. I don't understand what any of it means, really. So they were just talking over and over again in Nintendo Power about the Ultra 64. And it wasn't in really until 1997 that I personally cared about the PS1. You had a PS1 very early. So I was aware of it yeah. at that time. And I played it with you. And we'll get into when you bought it and what you bought with it and, and kind of your first impressions of it. But PS1, I was not, I wasn't in the middle of the, of the life cycle, but more towards the middle of the life cycle that I became engaged, mostly because of Final Fantasy VII. Exactly. And we'll get into that because that's obviously a really important game on the console. But interrupt me if you want to have any have anything to say about this thing because I just sure. want to kind of give the quick history of PlayStation 1. Okay. And Sony's involvement in the space so people have a little bit of background. And if you have any, any anecdotes or anything you want to jump, you know, just jump in. Okay. So... People have to understand that PlayStation has an intimate relationship with Nintendo going back to 1988 and Sony's relationship with Nintendo. And this has this Ken Kutaragi figures in a lot to this, who is who is considered the father of the PlayStation. And what basically ended up happening is that depending on what you read and, and kind of who set, who tells the stories, there are a lot of conflicting information out there about this. And even the guys that were involved in this have a lot of conflicting information about these times. Sony wanted a piece of the gaming industry. And they didn't really know quite how to get it. They saw Sega doing really exciting stuff, kind of coming out of nowhere. Nintendo obviously was dominating the market. And Sony at the time, people have to remember, was had its hands in a lot of different things. It was a very highly respected electronics company out of Japan. They're much less so today. And PlayStation today is really their biggest brand. But back in the day, they had a very nascent compute personal computer thing that ended up turning into the Vio line. They had beautiful TVs. The Walkman is something they revolutionized. Audio on the go is something they revolutionized. And they were actually revolutionizing two things that were playing in, in, integrally into what would end up being the PlayStation, which was sound and a CD-ROM format. Not this, not the CD-ROM format, but a CD-ROM format, the idea of optical media. And so in 1988, Sony and Nintendo get together and Sony pitches Nintendo on their new Super Famicom that they're going to put the sound chip in it. They were Sony was talking to Nintendo about how unimpressed they were with the sound on Famicom. And even the games like Castlevania 3 Dracula's Curse that had sound chips put into them to give them more robust sound, it wasn't up to snuff. And the sound wasn't matching the graphical prowess and kind of the technical prowess of the games as they advanced. So Sony went to them and were like, we'll make the sound chip for you. Yeah. And so they did. It was the SPC 700. It was like an audio processor. And it is in the Super Famicom. During this time, too, Sony is working with Philips, which is a Dutch technology company. Still very prominent That's Dutch, right. I always Dutch techno- technology company today that makes all sorts of things. They were working on a CD-ROM format called CD-ROM XA. And CD-ROM XA was special because it would allow a processor, a very nascent early processor in these video game consoles, and what would become the PlayStation, to access certain types of files simultaneously, which would allow things to run fast and like really robust. So it was, it sounds kind of like lame today, but back then it was, they had to think about like, how do you access an audio file at the same time they were accessing an image at the same time you're accessing all these things. It wasn't as easy as, as everyone thought they were calling it the super disc. So Nintendo was interested in this. Yeah. Nintendo wanted a piece of this. They wanted a piece of it specifically because their rival Sega was making something called the Mega CD, what we would know here as the Sega CD, which was an add-on for the Genesis, which came out in 88, 89, depending on where you are. And they were already ahead of the game. Plus, 
NEC and Turbo Graphics and the PC Engine had a CD add-on as well. Right. It was clear that things were going in this direction. And Nintendo was attached to its cartridge-based systems because of the money that was being extracted from its publishing partners. Exactly. And this was something that continued for 10 years after this. More than that. Unbelievable. When everyone, even Sega and Sony, abandoned cartridges completely, Nintendo stuck with it with the N64, which was a major mistake on their part. And we'll get into that. And we'll get into an even more major mistake that Nintendo made in a minute. So this was all happening. Nintendo saw that they needed to figure this out. They didn't have the technical prowess to do it. Sony did. So what they said was that you can make a console of your own. You can call it the PlayStation. They're going to call it the PlayStation. This was when the PlayStation was two words. PlayStation. Today it's intercapped. Right. And what it was, these things exist. One of them actually cropped up a few years ago because it was thought that they were all destroyed. They made like 200 of them. It was a place, it was a Super Nintendo or a Super Famicom with a CD drive underneath it. So you can attach a Super Famicom cartridge into it or open a tray like on old older PCs and enter the disc and then put it in. So it was like a Famicom plus it would play proprietary games that both Nintendo would get involved in, Sony would get involved in, and third parties would get involved in. This was the whole idea. And Nintendo was, for being such a close company, was surprisingly open to letting hardware companies mess around with them with, with their stuff. Famously, they, Panasonic made a GameCube in the early 2000s, famously. So there was, there was weird tethers and weird connections that they had uh, moving forward with this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so what ended up famously happening is that Nintendo was really upset with Sony secretly about the licensing agreement that they made, that Sony basically had their fingers in the pot, not only with the Super Famicom sound chip, which they re retained control over and basically got a cut of every Super Famicom sold. Oh, did they really? But they also were going to get significant licensing deals based on games that were sold on this proprietary CD drive that Nintendo wasn't going to get. Nintendo wanted a better cut. And to get a better cut, they basically went behind Sony's back and worked out with Sony's old partner, Philips, to make the CD add-on for the Super Nintendo. And famously at CES, Consumer Electronics Show, in Chicago in 1991, one day Sony comes out and says, like, we're making this console. Here it is. And it was a it was the console I described with the famous Super Famicom-style controller with the multicolor buttons on it. And the next day, Nintendo comes out and says, like, actually, we're making a console with Philips instead. And Sony, depending on what you read about this, Sony might have known about this, but went ahead and announced it anyway. I guess the for I guess the force Nintendo to do it, like like are they really going to abandon us at this hour? We've been working with them on this for some time. Now. It's unbelievable. I mean, one of the most dramatic things to ever happen in the history of home home video games. In indeed, it was it was incredibly dramatic. Even at the time, I I've read things in the past in doing research when I was at IGN or writing things. You go back and read old newspapers like micro like digitized digitized microfiche and stuff. And it was even dramatic then. Like, what the hell is this? Like, it was a it was a complete betrayal and a strange betrayal depending on what you read because Nintendo did this to Sony, a Japanese company, with a European company. So there was a lot of cultural shit wrapped up in this too. That Nintendo was afraid Sony was getting too much money and Nintendo was afraid that they were opening the door to a new competitor and they didn't think that they could fight another front on, uh, in this war. They're they already, already fighting with, Right, exactly. And Sega, you have to remember at this time, Genesis was not doing as well as it would end up doing in the early 90s. Right. Later on, because I think it was at the same CES or a, or a similar show that same year when Sega was like basically relaunching Genesis. A lot of people look at Genesis as coming out in 1991, but it didn't. Genesis launched and no one cared in the late 80s. It was when they packaged it with Sonic that everyone really thought it was relevant. So there's a lot of stories about what happens from this point. Ken Kutaragi apparently goes to Sony's board. 
And they're not happy about this. Uh, a guy named Norio Oga was Sony's president at the time. He's a really interesting dude. You can guys go read about him if you want. Sony wasn't keen on spending any more money in this. They were basically like, why are we even doing this? We have a lucrative television production you know, company. We are in movies. Right. We have... You know, our Walkman, we're working on, you know, portable CD players. Yeah. Vio is going to start really, you know, and Bravia and all these kinds of things are starting to like, you know, we don't need a piece of this. Why would we bother? And Ken went to them apparently. And there's stories about this board meeting. And I wish I was there basically where he was basically like being like, this is a matter of honor. Like this company fucked us. Nintendo really, really fucked us on this. They went behind our backs. We put all this work in and push when push came the shove, Nintendo actually sues Sony. Because Sony is now talking about making their own console. And Nintendo's like, you made all this stuff for us. You can't do that. And, and, and Sony ends up winning the lawsuit. So Sony, so Sony apparently, Kuragi apparently gets the directive from Sony's higher-ups after he talks to them. Not saying, go, just go do it. He's basically saying, like, go fuck them. Crush them. You know? And so what they end up doing is they're like, fine. They, they abandon the PlayStation with the space in between. They call the new code, P, the new system PSX, which is where the PSX moniker that PS1 ended up getting comes from. I never knew that. And they make their own standalone console. And it's the great story about how Nintendo inadvertently, because they were afraid of Sony, ended up creating a monster that almost killed them. And it can't be understated that Nintendo was in really bad shape in the late 90s and early 2000s. They were... You have to remember, PlayStation 1 was the first console to ever sell 100 million units. That's amazing. Super Nintendo and NES combined for 100 million units. Yeah, that's amazing to think about. Think about that. So this was, they created a monster in yeah. PlayStation that wow. they were going, they didn't, weren't, they weren't just getting involved to do it. They were getting involved because they wanted to kill Nintendo for what they did to them. Yeah. It's and a big part of it. Famously at E3 in, two, in 1995. And I think this was the first LA E3, because remember, E3 was in Atlanta originally. They announced the console for the States. This already out in Japan. No one really knows if this is going to be like a novelty Japanese thing, because there are things like that. And we would, there would be things like that later, like the Wonder Swan, for instance. Things that were right, really exactly. popular in Japan, but never came out here. Right. And they announced it, and they announced it at $299. And in fact, if you go, you guys go on E3 and watch the press conference, because it's up, and a guy, literally, one of their executives, I have no idea who it is, an old Sony SCEA executive, walks up and literally just says $299 into the microphone and walks away. Because <laughs> it's considered like a really big deal, because the Saturn is $400. Right, yeah. And the PlayStation obviously ends up outselling the Saturn many times over. <sighs> so that's basically the story about how PS1 comes into existence. And there's a lot of interesting things that PS1 does, like the DualShock controller later, memory cards, which were very foreign to us at the time as gamers. And I have a story about that. The triangle, square, circle, you know, triangle, square, circle, and X or cross if you're Japanese buttons. Two triggers on the controller itself. Lots of really interesting stuff going on. It reads your CD, your music CDs, which was a big deal. That's a very big deal then. Back in the day. So there's a lot to love and a lot to learn about it, but that's basically in a short, brief way, and you guys can go read more about it because there's a lot of stuff, and I've even written about it. You can go find my stuff, I think. There's stuff where I've talked about it in the past. That's the story about it, in a nutshell, of how PS1 came to be. Unbelievable. So t talk to me, Dagan, about when you ended up buying one because I we were talking about this a little bit too. I have a memory of you buying it. I remember you buying it at Nobody Beats the Wiz. You remember buying it at PC Richards. These are yeah. both very New York centric companies yeah, that I are. think both don't exist. Or no, PC Richards exists. They're I don't still think around. Wiz, I don't think Wiz exists anymore. I don't think so. Unless and, they fold it into something else or something. And obviously there's a Nobody Beats the Wiz reference in Seinfeld where they where Elaine is dating the Wiz. 
Do you, do you ever, did you ever see that one? We're going to talk about Seinfeld later. We yeah. dating like the mascot, the king mascot. Oh yes, yeah, nobody yeah. beats me, and like, <laughs> he like wouldn't stop playing the character. Basically, but that was like such an obscure reference for anyone that didn't grow up in the tri-state because that wasn't a company that. Was yeah, that is that was right. It was very yeah provincial. And I bought my first TV at, at the Wiz in high school. But anyway, tell me a little bit about when you got it, why you got it, what games you got for it, okay, and, and kind of how it struck you, okay. So yeah, so I started, once my friend Chris got it, I started to get excited about it. And I was like, wow, this is really, this is actually pretty cool. I think I would like to get one of these. So I bided my time a little bit. He got his in September of 95. As I remember, and you could be right, it might have been The Wiz. I, we, we both agree on the, what strip mall it was, but it could have been PC Richards. It could have been The Wiz. I think I got it in very early January of 96. I must have been home for Christmas break, over the holiday break, I'm assuming. And I went and picked it up. On I, I was home from Philly. I was spending time at Dad's house. And we went, went and got it. And it came that the pack-in was Battle Arena Toshinden. And I believe I bought Tomb Raider, the first Tomb Raider game at that same time. If I didn't, I must have got like a day later or something. And I don't think I... Did we hook it up... Remind me, did we hook it up at Dad's house, or did I not even take it out of the box until I got back to? Philly? I don't know that you hooked it up at the house because I, I don't, don't think remember so. Playing it at that time, I remember pouring over the instruction mat. I remember what I remember about it is being like, "What is this? It's a CD." You know, Dad was a, a prolific and still is a prolific music collector, so we we had tons of CDs. I mean, Dad yeah. had optical media really early, probably in the late '80s when CDs when people were still listening to cassettes. So that wasn't foreign to me. What was foreign to me was that there was a video game on this thing. That you could, it was a video game with CD and. I remember the instruction manual fit, you know, it's very trite when you talk about it now, but the instruction manual fit at the top of the jewel case seemed very delicate and dainty. You almost didn't want to touch it. Cartridges had like a lot of meat to them. So I remember sitting at the kitchen table at the Marie courthouse and, and dealing with that, but we didn't, I don't think you hooked it up at the time. I don't think you wanted to. The quality of those CD of the PS, well, we all remember the quality of those PS1 CD cases were were terrible. They were like made of ice. (laughs) You know, it was like really. Actually, I should have got the box out. It's right behind you in the closet with all the other boxes. Because um, oh, that's still... the th- wait a minute. That's the thing is that you had that Toshinden was an early enough game where it had the the tall PS One case. Actually, right? Was <sighs> w- w- were shit that I forgot about that. Remember, early PS One games actually had the they almost looked like Saturn games. Yes. No, I think you're right. And yeah, then they eventually were little, they shrunk them down. Then eventually they got thinner. Right. Yeah. No, I think you're right. That it did come in a fatter jewel case. With the like the black binding, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that was even more mysterious to me because I was like, "What is this?" You know what's funny about the PlayStation though? I I was very excited about it, and I was excited about the games, and I was excited about it. Was kind of neat, even though I was such a I was such a you know hardcore two D gamer and i loved like the 16-bit era and stuff like that i was really excited about playing games in 3d and seeing clips of tomb raider and wow this is an open 3d world to explore it seems kind of the graphics look a little blocky but it looks actually really fun and you could explore and it's sort of open it's it's so much different i was excited about it but i'll be really honest with you between tomb raider the first tomb raider which i'm actually in retrospect not a fan of I thought the controls were really weird in that game. And Toshinden. And another thing, which you already know, I'll, I'll talk about. But I was put off. Once I started playing it, I was pretty put off by it right away. I was like, I don't know about this. I, I don't know if I'm digging this. And what really, what really brought that home for me 
and added insult to injury and sort of put salt in the wound was I hated and still hate the D-pad on the PS1 controller. I can't stand it. The segmented D-pad is for shit. I can't use that thing. And you have to understand, as I'm sure you do, but people have to understand that the yeah. reason that that's still a thing on on, play, on DualShock 4 is because yeah. so, Nintendo owns the the, the patent to, right. to the, the classic plus sign D-pad, the way it was on the controller. Sony could not put Couldn't that on the controller. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do you it. You had to do something different, which is why the Nintendo D-pads are always better. Even on the Wii, like I actually really loved the Wii when you held the controller sideways to play virtual console games. I loved that D-pad. Yeah, it was very comfortable. Yeah, it was it was a little small, but it was it was it was good. But anyway, just to throw that out there, the reason that no one replicates, like, why would you reinvent the wheel? It's easy to because forget because they had to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, you really you literally had to. And you know why I really hated it because I couldn't play like I remember playing um, a little later on, like Street Fighter Alpha. It might have been Street Fighter Alpha Two at that point, the PlayStation port, and I could not play. A fi- I couldn't throw a fireball with that D-pad. You know, especially from one side. I don't know if it was the if I was better at the first player side or the second player side. It was like really, really frustrating for me. So right off the bat, initially, I was sort of excited about it for about a week, and I was like, you know what? I'm not really. I kind of left it alone. I sort of like just put it down for a while, to be honest. Maybe until Final Fantasy VII came out. You know, that was the first Final Fantasy VII come out. And this is a whole nother chapter to sort of grow into now and sort of talk about you and I but that was the first time I really remember getting truly excited was when that game was coming out and we were waiting for it sort of breathlessly waiting for this game to come out so what were your what, so what were your early so takeaways again, so again being such that? a Nintendo fan this is we had a computer and I think actually we uh, we got the internet in 1996 so so this was probably when I was it might even been 95 when we got the internet but I, this was when I was this is what I was. Oh my God! What's happening? My Siri, Siri's talking to me. Sorry, uh, sorry, sorry, Siri. Did you want something? We're in the middle of. I know, Siri's so fucking rude. God. I, so I was becoming more and more aware because of my love of role playing games that okay. there was this console that had role playing games, lots of role playing games, and I can't understate for people out there because I'm known very much as a. I love shooters. Like I'm a big first-person shooter fan. I'm a big fan of side-scrolling action games. That goes back to my childhood. And I love open-world games, which are kind of a newer invention, really, especially in the console space. But it cannot be understated how far up the JRPG genre's ass I was when I was a kid. I was way up its ass forever. From the year probably 1993, like the mid-SNES era, to the end of the PS1 era. What's the, what game much, started that for you? It's probably Final Fantasy II. Okay. Slash four. Yeah, yeah, of course. And the one that really made me love the genre was Final Fantasy VI, which is still one of my favorite games of all time. And after that, I was like, I don't want to play anything else. So 90% of my game playing from the early to mid-90s to the end of the PS1 era was role-playing games. That's it. There were exceptions, and we'll get into some of those exceptions, because when people reminisce about the Super Nintendo and the PS1, and like as we're recording this, they just announced that the Spyro trilogy from PS1 is being remastered and like remade and coming to PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. And everyone's so excited. I'm like, I couldn't give a flying fuck about that. Like, the, like people people were tweeting at me being like, oh, aren't you excited? I'm like, no, I don't care. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. You're excited. I right. think that's great. Right. Spiral right. means nothing to me. No. Those were games that I rented and like and played and probably played for like 10 minutes. And I'm like, this yeah. is, where, this, are the, where are the hit points? This, <laughs> so I really, really, really loved Japanese role-playing games. And I know a lot of people, there's like, there's a contention, as I know you know, Dagan, about does Super Nintendo have the better PlayStation or role-playing games or does PlayStation have the better role-playing games? Yes. PlayStation has 
way better role-playing games, way more of them too. I'm not saying that they have anything on the level of Final Fantasy VI, but I'm saying they have a lot on the level of Final Fantasy II. They have a lot on the level of Chrono Trigger. Yeah. And so, so, so just below that level, right? And they, there's just a volume of them. I mean, you have some of my, you have a bunch of my PS1 games. Right yeah, there. I was they're looking down at them. Yeah. The, I had a shelf the size of your shelf here covered in PS1 games. It's amazing. I spent all my money. I probably had like 70 or 80 of them. Yeah, that's a and lot. By the, end, by the end of the, the generation. I mean, it was insane. And that's half of them lot. were burns, of course. Right, right, right. And we'll get into that because I had a thing called the Goldfinger, which was like amazing. Yeah, I know about the, yeah. And I, I admit it now, I was a little hesitant when I was at like IGN and other, you know, early in my career to talk about it, but it was like, I was like, what, in 10th grade? Who cares? Yeah, that, come on. We all went through those things. So, yeah, so I was, I was reading these early websites and, you know, there was a, IGN was, back in the day, people might not remember, was originally N64.com and then they were SaturnWorld.com and PSXPower.com. Oh, wow. These things all combined into the Imagine Games Network. Hence, you get IGN. Which doesn't mean that anymore. It hasn't since Imagine sold the company in the late 90s. So when we tell you IGN meant nothing, it really didn't mean anything. Really nothing. Again. But it did at one time. And I was reading these things, these interesting things on those sites and on web, you know, and on fan sites on like GeoCities and Angel Fire and stuff about, wow. about how there are these amazing role-playing games coming out at this massive clip on this console. And there's a Final Fantasy game coming to it, which is Final Fantasy VII, as you were yeah. mentioning. Yeah. And I remember seeing commercials and, you know, I was very embedded with Nintendo N64, still playing Super Nintendo. I should make the exception that I would play role-playing games, but I would make an exception for NHL and Madden every year. I'd buy both of those on Super Nintendo and later on PS1. I loved those games. Yeah, you were. And I, would, and I would make exceptions, too. We'll talk about Metal Gear Solid. We'll talk about... Oh, sure. All of the games that, you know, that are important in that realm. Parappa the Rapper. Parappa, of course. But it was that my draw to role-playing games... And their love of these games and how ambitious these games were getting and how the word, even though you didn't know if it was true or not, it ended up being true that Nintendo, these games simply would not fit on an N64 cartridge. They simply wouldn't. People might remember that Nintendo and Square Soft at the time, Square Enix didn't exist until 2003. So not people yet. have to remember Square and Enix were two different companies. In fact, arch rivals yes. in Japan, which is a loss in a lot of people. Square Soft created this demo for N64, what was called Ultra 64 at the time, of the Final Fantasy VI characters rendered in 3D. And so people assumed, and Nintendo assumed, and originally Squaresoft assumed that the next Final Fantasy would be on the, on the N64. And when Sony went to them and said, we can, you can actually complete your vision on our console. You won't be able to make the game in, what, 60 megabytes or something like that, whatever you can put on the game, when you can fit hundreds of megabytes on these discs. Right, and it still fit? took them three discs to put the entire game on it. Yeah, it did. There are... There was a draw to me where I'm like, I have to have this thing. I don't. The N64 was like boring at the time. I still stand by the fact that the N64 was boring. I don't think that there was that much good on it. I agree with you. People, people look at that console with rose-colored glasses, I think, and that's fine. People might feel that way about the NES and SNES and the way we look at those consoles. Absolutely. But I look at the N64's library, and I look at the N64's performance of only 30 million units sold or so, so less than a third of the amount that PS1 sells at the same time. That speaks for itself. The N64 had some really powerful, great games. Mario 64 was a really seminal game. Goldeneye, obviously, a very important first-person shooter. Absolutely. The Zelda games were great, especially Majora's Mask, which yep. is my favorite. But And I love random games like Hybrid Heaven, Castlevania 64, whatever. You have those on the shelf as well. I was looking at them before. Yeah. And I remember buying Hybrid Heaven on eBay for 20 bucks. I'll never forget. Really? Yeah, like right after it came out. And so I was like, I have to have this. And I have to have Final Fantasy VII. Now, there's an extra connection to this that I think you're might, you might be forgetting. Okay. You told me about this game that ended up being one of my very favorite games of all oh, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you did play before Final Fantasy VII. Came yes, because it came out first. 
it was by a, a Japanese developer that still exists today called Media Vision. And it was a Sony exclusive SCE published the game. It's called Wild Arms. And a lot of people hear me talk about this game a lot. But Wild Arms is so good and so important to me. It's brilliant. That between that game existing, Final Fantasy Tactics coming out in early 98, Tactics Ogre was around the corner, Saga Frontier, which ended up being terrible, but we were really excited about that. Rumblings of games like Legend of Lagaya, which I want to talk about in a little while, other games like that. I had to have this thing. So I went to EB Games at Fox Run Mall in New Hampshire. It's in Portsmouth. It's technically in Newington, New Hampshire. Sold my entire SNES collection. Pre-ordered a PS or pre-ordered Final Fantasy VII, bought a PS1, brought it home, had nothing on it, had like the demo disc, and waited like two months for the console to come out or for the game to come out. And didn't even realize that I needed a memory card. It was so this whole this whole thing. Right, of, of, that whole thing too. This whole thing was so foreign to me that I did not realize that you needed that the CDs couldn't save anything. You couldn't write on a CD. Rewriting CDs happened in the late nineties, but even then you weren't even today, no one's saving anything on a CD. You're not no, writing your CD. Not on the consoles. Didn't understand that. So I had to go back and buy a memory card. And this is something I didn't even realize until after I had Final Fantasy. Did so. you buy a aftermarket or did you buy a CD? Yeah, I bought an aftermarket one. Oh, Huge yeah. mistake. Uh, that ended up being a massive mistake. Not good. So, <laughs> so that was my memory of it, and I fell in love with Final Fantasy VII. And the funny thing is, is that I just replayed Final Fantasy VII all the way through for the first time since I was in middle school or high school, probably. Wow, it's been a long time. This past summer, it, it, they re-released the the PC port, which is a port of the PS1 version on PS4. And so I I platinumed it. I I got the platinum trophy and I did everything in the game, beat the weapons, ruby, ruby weapon, weapon. weapon. Okay, really hard, very hard, like impossibly hard, really ridiculous actually. Yeah, and. I didn't remember it being that hard because I feel like I did it as a kid. I, don't I never know. did. But I had a lot of time back then. So I was probably level 99 and all that shit. And I just, I never looked back. I was a Nintendo fan through and through until the Wii era. I, as we've said on pe- previous episodes, I loved the GameCube, especially. I really loved the GameCube. But PlayStation won my heart at that time as a, as a brand. Absolutely. And I, and, I never, and I never looked back. And they've always really done me right as a gamer from my sensibilities. Now, I understand that your sensibilities might be different. So you yeah. might, might gravitate towards Xbox and the more shootery kind of e- Xbox Live ecosystem kind of thing, which is totally valid. Or you might gravitate more towards the childish, and I don't mean that as an insult, the more kiddish Nintendo kind of stuff. Yeah, it's more whimsical. Whimsical, fantasy, not not high fantasy, but fantasy-based, fantastic kind of stuff, which is totally valid as well. But for me, it had what I needed, which was what we were getting on the SNES back in the day, but not often enough. We would get Lufia... And then we'd have to wait a little while. Right. Then we would get Act Razor and we had to wait a little while. You had a taste. Yeah. And then we'd get Chrono Trigger and then we'd wait a little while. But on PlayStation 1, I'm fucking telling you, there was a role-playing game of quality every few weeks sometimes. Yeah, every step of the way. You're right For about. years. Yeah, for a long, over a long period. And so I, I, I could never look back. And that that was encapsulated only in that era. That kind of game stopped. Like that kind of thing stopped. PS2 didn't have that. PS3 no, didn't have that. PS4 didn't have that. Definitely not. PSP had it a little bit and Vita had it a little bit. But that was a, for a Japanese role playing game fan of a, a young kid who had a finite amount of money, lots of time on his hands, other hobbies that were sucking money out of his wallet sure. Star Wars action figures, D&D, Star Wars customizable card game, all the weird shit I was into when I was a kid. Yeah, all the stuff you go through. Magic, all, whatever. Yeah, you come through all that stuff. I funneled all my... So I ended up having like 15 N64 games or 20 N64 games. Most of them probably garnered on eBay and most of them that I didn't get on eBay, you know, I probably only bought like five or six of them like brand new. 
you know, and uh, or I got them for Christmas or something. Like that's that. it's, but I had a ton of PS One games. So funny to paint the picture that way. Yeah, it really was the golden age of the JRPG. It actually turned the previous what we thought was the golden age of the SNES era of the JRPG actually turned that into the Silver Age and became the Golden Age. I agree with you. Yeah, that's, then that's a contentious point. But I, I agree with you there. Yeah, I mean, very. if you take the triumvirate, the classic SNES of, we all know, triumvirate of Final Fantasy IV, VI, Secret of Mana, and Chrono Trigger, that's a very tough, you know, that's a very tough grouping to beat. But it was beat. You know, it was beat because the PlayStation had so much to offer. Well, I have two questions for you. How, so how did Final Fantasy hold up now playing it re- recently? Well, Final that, Fantasy VII. Yeah, I guess that's what I was touching on. I forgot was I was always a little hard on it afterwards. And I don't know if it was because I thought it was cool and like that 90s internet era to be like Final Fantasy VII is not good. You, you, you morons don't play Wild Arms. You morons don't play Parasite Eve. You, right. You idiots don't know anything about, you know, Thousand Arms or... Legend of Gaia or right. whatever. Were you a Suikoden guy? Yeah, I, I liked... Uh, Suikoden was good. Suikoden was really ambitious. It was too much for me. It was really ambitious. And people, obviously, Suikoden 2 especially, people love. That's like but, a lot but, of people's but, but to me, I was like, oh, you don't play Brave Fencer Musashi? You don't play Xenogears? You play Final Fantasy VII, you fucking loser? You know, that was kind of like my attitude. Yeah. And I think I let that color my perception of the game. Like you had to stick with it. Right, where I was like, I, I kind of tricked myself into being like, that game was never good. Yeah, yeah. I was never one of those guys that was like, that game was bad. But I was like, there's no way that that game is as good as people talk about it being. And it's not. Right. But it's way better than I thought it was. Does it hold up? Not really. I mean, it's, it's you know, turn-based, you know, active battle system. All yeah. that kind of same stuff. The graphics are terrible, obviously. The graphic, the in-game graphics are very, very rough. But all I was the always... cutscenes were very, you know, very ahead of their time. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the FMVs, the, the pre-rendered stuff, the backgrounds are really pretty, too. They did a really nice job, and the style, right, and the exactly. art direction was very was fierce, and the combat's balanced. There's a lot. There's optional characters in Vincent and Yuffie. There's side quests, sure, and kind of a world to explore. Sure, optional sure. bosses, like we were talking about the weapons and stuff. So there's there's cool stuff like that. But I was always of the mind that Final Fantasy VIII was a step backwards. The draw system was really weird. There was a lot of weird shit in that game. I have not played that game since I was in high school, and then nine. I loved because it returned back to what I wanted, which was a fantasy aesthetic. Yeah, that yeah. we were getting not so much in six because that was steampunk, but but four and five, and we didn't. But we, I didn't even know that yet because I didn't play Final Fantasy five until nineteen ninety nine because that's when it came out on PS one, and that was in the Final Fantasy Chronicles or Final Fantasy Antho- Final Fantasy Anthology. I can't keep those two straight. But one of them was Final Fantasy five and Final Fantasy six, and one of them was Final Fantasy four and Chrono Trigger, a really bad port of Chrono Trigger. So, was that a bad port? Yeah, it was like really latent and like when you would pause the game to go into the menus, it would take like five seconds. It was oh. like horrible. Oh, that's weird. Like it was unplayable. I remember people would talk about like how when you go into the menus, like make sure to do everything you need to do because like you're never going to want to go back into the wow. menus. Wow. It really ruined Chrono Trigger for me for like generations. That's a shame. So, yeah, so it held up better and it was a really important game. That was the game that got me in the door. I don't think I appreciated it enough digging that it was the game that got me in the door. Okay, okay. So, so what were some of the games that meant something to you on PS1? So... Final Fantasy VII was the first one. Now, I remember looking at all the PlayStation, all the various PlayStation magazines. I never subscribed to any, but I would always go into Wawa. I was in college at the time in Philly. I would go into Wawa and go to the magazine rack and just pour over them. And Final Fantasy VII was really my foray into that. And what I was so... This might be a deep cut or hard to understand for some people that aren't artists, but I was new, new in art school and I was learning about... You know, I was learning all this cool stuff about character design and like taking all these academic animation courses and learning about, you know, it wasn't just doodling in high school anymore. Like I was learning, I was learning my trade 
I was starting to learn my trade by some really talented professors, actually, young and talented professors that really were getting us jazzed about becoming animation artists and having a career in animation. And we were learning about character design, and I was always really interested. I always knew I wanted to be a character designer, and we were learning about all those integral things to being a character designer, like if you can't exaggerate, you can't animate, and exaggeration, and pushing things, and pushing features, and um, creating a dynamic silhouette, and create if you're creating a group of characters to make them really diverse in size, make one really little, one really big, and all the way, all the proper ways of designing something to make it interesting. And when Final Fantasy VII, they started blurbing it in the magazines, and they started to show images, I was like, what? I was like smitten. I was like, look at the size of that guy's sword. This is exactly what I'm learning right now. Look at, look at that guy. Look at this guy has like a giant. He, he's missing a hand. He has a giant gun arm, like a giant Gatling gun for a hand. And look how big he is compared to the kid with the giant sword. And then they showed, they were showing pictures of Vincent. And I was like, Who's the, who the hell is this guy? He's got like a gun and a metal claw on the other hand. I, we were just like, I was, I was already such an anime nerd as everybody that listens to the show knows. But that was, we were just, I was just like, what is this thing? You know, we're, we're going from, or at least I'm going from all those beloved, you know, albeit beloved games that we were playing on the SNES. But these were really, even the really cool games like Final Fantasy 4 and 6, it was a little chibi sprite graphics and stuff. This was like, this felt like it was like four levels ahead of everything we had ever seen. And we, I haven't even played it or seen anything yet. I was like, this is what the game's going to look like. This is unbelievable. What? Just give it to me now. Like, I'm in. Here's my money type of thing, you know? That was the Final Fantasy. Seeing Final Fantasy VII in the magazines, even if it was like a quarter page thing, was just like the most. I would buy the mag. I didn't have any money then. I would buy the $6 magazine right off the Wawa newsstand just because of that little quarter page thing. I needed to look at that. You know, I was almost like a little kid again, pouring through like a, I mean, I wasn't even a kid when, when Nintendo Power came out, I was like 12 years old. You know, I felt like I was six years old, like looking at a comic book or something or a picture book that I was really, you know, where the wild things are or something, something that I was really, some visual that I was really smitten with. It was almost like this childlike joy that I was getting from this. And then when that came out, well, the thing was Wild Arms came out first and I wanted to ask you, so when... I t- was my, was your first when you first realized Wild Arms existed was that from me explaining it to you? Yeah, you told me that there was this there was this role playing game, traditional role playing game that took place in like a Wild West setting, and that I had to play it. That it was really hard. And one of the things that we really liked about it, both of us, as I remember, I don't know if you remember, is that yeah, role playing games often mix characters in and out of parties, which is a standard thing in a lot of Japanese role playing games. I always find it a little frustrating if there's an Achilles heel to six, it's that there's too many characters in it. They're all important to the story. And I actually wouldn't, I don't know who I would select and like get rid of. Maybe I would get rid of like Gao or yeah. someone like that. Yeah. Or, you know, realm or someone, but, and certainly the characters that you find like Gogo and Yamaro, like who I don't give a shit about, but there's just too many characters and it actually culminates at the end of six because you use them all in the final battle. So there's, there, there's a cool thing like that, but you, there was, there was no attention to the game design in that, at that time where, Today, if you use, like I'm playing Nino Kuni 2, and I just use the same three characters over and over again, but my my party members that are not in the game are getting like 80% of the experience points, so at least everyone grows a little bit. Okay, that's time. cool. Back in the day, like if you didn't, if you neglected in Final Fantasy VI, if you neglected to use, you know, Sabin or Edgar, like they would be level 10 where you left them. 
Yeah. And everyone else would be like level 60. So there was this weird balancing act. I and mean, the OCD in my mind even then, like everyone had to learn every Esper. Everyone had to learn every spell. Everyone had to have the best equipment, even if I wasn't using them. Yeah. I, I found notebooks recently, actually, when we were at Dad's, like of just like my old notes being like, this is how much gold I need to buy everything at this town before <laughs> I move on. It's going to take me five days to do this. So you can just literally don't need to do this. But okay, everyone's got to learn at the espers and everyone's got to, you know, it's like insane. Isn't that so funny? Like all the 8-bit and especially 16-bit JRPGs, like for anybody like you and I with OCD, that wasn't helping. You know, that was not helping our OCD, those games. No, they weren't. I, I can't My imagine. God. To this day, I can't play games without doing stuff like that. Like, yeah. I just don't understand why you'd even bother. But that's me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild, the draw to Wild Arms to me was that was it was it was Rudy, Jack, and Cecilia. And they that was your party. And so you really got to know them. There was an intimacy to the characters and the story. The story is really sad. Very and there was also well a cool written. magic system, the glyph system, that like where you went and bought, like you found these glyphs in the wild that you then could make into a spell and you only had a finite amount of them so you couldn't have every spell and you can actually like rewrite them and stuff like that right on your needs so there was really cool stuff like that in the game that i loved i just loved it beautifully done and you you sold me on this game it wasn't the first game wild arms was the third game i got for ps1 and we'll talk about the second game because the second game is really important but that yeah that's my memory of it but yeah seven was first for me seven that came was, first for you and that was because that was what i got it when it came you know when I, so i pre-ordered it and i yeah. finally got it and you know I, obviously i was in eighth grade so i had a or seventh yeah seventh or eighth grade eighth grade i guess and i had a finite amount of money so i had to really think carefully about what i wanted to do and sure. there were some duds in there that i bought too like beyond the beyond which was terrible some other role-playing games that were just not good but yeah, yeah that was that's just a really good memory for me and i was so glad to go back to play final fantasy 7 recently and just kind of reunite reignite that and kind of correct the record in my own mind okay yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah yeah, that's. I I'm gonna not talk. I know I know the game you're referring to that we we haven't gotten to yet, and I'm wondering. I don't. I'm not gonna talk about it yet, but I'm wondering if this came before Wild Arms for me. I don't remember. But Wild Arms was the first physical PlayStation game that I held in my hands that I was very excited about, and I got it a little before Final Fantasy VII. I know that, and I was living with my friend and roommate Ducky at the time, and he was a very big gamer, and. I knew a little bit about Wild Arms from the magazines. I think what had happened was I was waiting. We were waiting for Final Fantasy VII, and then I knew a little bit about Wild Arms probably from reading of something, a little something about it, a little bit of a preview in a magazine or something. Probably, I, th- I used to go to this video game store on Chestnut Street and another video game store that was in the Gallery Mall on Market Street in Philly. And I think I literally just walked in there one day looking around. I think what had happened was I was starting to think about the Saturn a little bit. Because they were selling it, or at least from my perspective, there was an angle, there was like an excitement with the guys I used to hang around with that this was going to be good, this was going to be a really good home platform for the 2D fighters. That was already like a known thing. So I think I was already thinking about that. So I might have been wandering around thinking about like, let me me see how I could size this up or pre-order one or something. But I walked into the store and ended up coming home with Wild Arms which I already known a little bit about. And I was like, I absolutely need this game. I don't know if it was the anime artwork that helped drive the drive it home for me or whatever, but I brought it home and I remember popping it in. I had like an hour before I had to be at work and I popped it in and I was like, first of all, that amazing opening FMV, the, the intro song and the opening animated intro when you start the game up is like, breathtaking i mean who could forget that song and that opening sequence that it's a fully animated opening anime sequence introducing you to the characters and then i think i played a little bit of the game like the first 
15 minutes, 20 minutes of the game. And I was like, there's no, and my friend Ducky, my roommate didn't work. And he was a student as well at school, but he didn't work. And I knew if I left this thing out, then he was going to, he was going to get ahead. He was going to play it for 12 hours. And so I hit it and he got really pissed off actually (laughs) about it. But I remember literally that guy, I went and like hid the game in my room and he actually called me at work. He's like, where's wild arms? (laughs) 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 And I had to tell him like I hid it in my closet and he got really mad at me. But, um, so that was my first thing that I was I as far as I remember that was the first game that I was like super super excited about. And you're right. If anybody and to this day even I mean with the with the advent of YouTube and game reviewing on YouTube and all the channels and everything like that, it's gotten a little more Wild Arms has gotten a little more recognition and shine than it you it was certainly a sleeper during its time. It got very quickly overlooked because Final Fantasy came out right on its heels. As I remember. Yeah, Final Fantasy VII basically snuffed the fire. Final Fantasy VII came right out, right after it. And that didn't help it. But if you guys haven't played this game and you have access to playing, um, getting your, getting, I don't know what it goes for. Actually, it's a really good point. I don't know what the game would go for right now on eBay or some other means of getting it. But definitely, it's high, I highly recommend it if you like RPGs. It's very, very special game. It's very beautifully done. Like Colin said, very well written, wonderful characters. Not a ton of characters. There's, there's a, a good handful of characters. Only three playable characters. There's other characters that come in and out of the storyline that are really neat. And it deals with. It has a really imaginative and very well realized world and setting, like a cyber western setting. That kind of is like an alchemy of like magic and weapons, like gun-like weapons, and these giant robots as well. And really, really like well, just really, really beautifully thought out game. And special all the way through. Difficult. Has a little bit of the Final Fantasy VII syndrome that I think was, you know, a, a common thing during this era where the overworld quote-unquote sprites were pretty nice pretty beautiful like taking the 16-bit graphics to the next level but the in-game fighting sequences were really heinous cg yeah crude very crude i mean they make they make final fantasy 7 look good actually but it didn't hurt it it didn't hurt the gameplay you just knew what it was that that during that era it was acceptable but definitely that was my first that was the first i'm not going to go further than that Wild Arms is enough to talk about for now, but I'll let you take take the take the uh, baton on the next thing. But Wild Arms is not only is it one of my favorite PlayStation games; it's one of my favorite games of all time. I would put Wild Arms definitely in my top ten. Oh yeah, me too. I mean, yeah, for sure, top five probably for me. But yeah, wow, that's yeah. I mean, I, I love. I mean, and maybe a lot of it is tied into memory, but I've beaten it several times, including it's, as an adult. And it's it's it's, it's just that a, good. And the sequel is really good too, by the way. A lot of people I don't never know played, played any of them. Wild Arms two came out in 99 or 2000. It was like right before the PS2 came out. I remember. And, and I loved that game. Like that was a really great game. It was different. It wasn't as good. More characters. Okay. Longer. But more playable characters in that? Yeah. Okay. But still a really special game. And if Wild Arms was underlooked, then Wild Arms 2 was even more mm. underlooked. But yeah, there's a lot of really special stuff on the console. And, and you know, I was looking at some stats that I thought were interesting. Sony claims that there were 7,981 individual games released. What that be, for the console, what that means wow. is that it, that's not true though. What that means is that 
Gran Turismo was released in Japan once, Europe once, North America once, you know, like that kind of shit. Okay. So there's several thousand games up for the PS1. Okay. Reduce that. And Sony claimed that at the end of the run, so PS1s were manufactured from 1994 to 2006. And I think that in 2000, 2001, 2002, from then on to 2006, it was specifically in the PS1 mold, the PS1, PSONE mold, like the little ones that you can attach the TV to and stuff, which were really cool. I knew someone that had that portable TV. That was really cool. They said that they sold 962 million games. So almost a almost a billion games sold for PS1. So an attach rate of nearly 10 to 1, like 9, 9.5 to 1. That's... Which is a great attach rate huge. for a console. Really, really great. Meaning huge. that people were engaged in it. If you look at the attach rate to some more gimmicky or novelty consoles, way lower than that. Way lower than what that. What about by contemporary standards, Carl? How does that measure up? Sony, I think the I think the attach rate on PS4 right now is like six or seven to one, so it should it should increase. Although I the the numbers are more nebulous now, and it's harder to judge because back in the day you were spending PS1 games were fifty bucks, so you're spending a fifty dollars for a game, forty nine nine forty nine ninety nine for a game. But today you can buy a game on PS4 for five bucks. And those that's count. a good point. You buy digital games, you buy and digital counts. Yeah, and there are and there are deep you know what they call flash sales on PSN where the games are like basically worth nothing. Yeah, it's like a fire sale. So that kind of inflates the number. I think Good this point. number is much more impressive considering the the retail-only, physical-only nature of the games. Right, that era, sure. And what I think is interesting about it, too, is, you know, I wrote this thing, this note, about the inverse relationship between the cartridges and the CDs. And this is a really important thing for me about that I think is lost on people when they're talking from a more scholarly perspective about the console. The cartridges could only go so far. Cartridges were really expensive, and Nintendo was obsessed with cartridges because it allowed them to control everything. Because there was no people were like ten gen, and everyone were trying to make cartridges, but and they were being locked out and stuff like that. But right. Nintendo controlled the means of production for this stuff, and that's where, as we talked about on previous episodes, that's where Nintendo's kind of Byzantine and strange five games per year rule and stuff like that, which which was manufactured because Atari twenty six hundred collapsed because people were putting too many games on it. So I understand that from kind of its embryonic state, but. There was a, such a control issue with Nintendo from the beginning to the end, including their relationship with Sony, which is what caused the PlayStation to be manufactured to begin with, that the cartridge just wasn't going to do it. And and there was diminishing returns on the... If you look at it as like a graph, like the, the, the line's going down for the cartridge as the ability of what games could do was going up and only could be done on a CD. And so even though the N64 was actually, I think, in some ways technically more powerful than the PS1, the... PS1's games were far more ambitious. If you look at games like on N64, like they're they miss they're missing things. There's not a lot of textures, for instance. Things that like wouldn't fit on the on these small cartridges. And the games were more expensive. The games were, you know, just like with SNES and SNES, games were fluctuating in value based on how much how or how big the cartridge was, how big the chipset was. And that wasn't really the case on PlayStation. Even games with two or three discs were often the same price as games with one disc because the CDs were so cheap to make that it was... You're talking about like pennies oh, com- yeah. compared to cartridges, which, you know, I know that with Sega and Nintendo, at least on Super Nintendo and on NES and Master System, that you would have to buy stuff well ahead of time and they would allocate you a certain amount of a certain amount of cartridges. It wasn't based on demand. It was based on what you could afford. So as you've touched on in the past, when you see a game on eBay from Nintendo or Super Nintendo... The, the rarity of it is not necessarily because of how popular it was. Sometimes games were really popular and weren't able to sell. I've used the example of Naughty Dog's Rings of Power, which was a Genesis game, 
they had the demand to make more, but they only were able to make like 200,000 copies of the game because they couldn't get any more fucking cartridges. They couldn't get them. So it was just not possible for them to make it. But on CDs, that's not that's not a problem. Those yeah. things were cheap to manufacture. Many Sony had their own manufacturing plant in the United States to make those discs, and others were making them as well, the black bottoms, as we call them. And right. it was just a totally different ballgame. So these things were not only... Go entering the digital optical space, the games weren't only getting more ambitious. The games weren't only getting bigger. They weren't only playing more. Cartridges had no advantages except for one, that they loaded like that in a snap. That was the one advantage. There were no load times on N64. And that was a new thing for us on PlayStation, for those of us that grew up with, with Genesis and grew up with Super Nintendo Great and Nintendo. Was, we were like, why is it loading? Yep. What does this mean? You mean a memory card to save it? It's loading for a minute sometimes. You put in an N64 game, it loads. Loading so, and saving. This was a new thing. Right. So it was a totally different ball game. Obviously, we were saving on cartridges. We were saving on their batteries. We didn't really, right. we didn't understand how it worked. We understood how it worked when they started dying. Exactly. Later on. And you can, originally, you can send them to Nintendo to replace them. I don't think they do that anymore, though. For the Zelda carts and such? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, they, you can, and you, there's tutorials online. You guys can replace them yourselves if you wanted to. But that was kind of the thing was that it was just a whole new way of looking at it. And it was a whole new way of playing it. It was a whole new way that we, we kind of take for granted now. It's actually been, a longer period of time that we've been playing like this than we weren't. But it's sometimes interesting to think about it in that perspective. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's been it's been 23 years since the PlayStation was released. It was a dramatic shift. It really was. But I would say maybe the most dramatic shift up to this point. For sure. You know? For sure. So we have a lot of questions here from the audience, and I, I want to I wanna work them all in. So let's, okay. let's, I'm going to pitch these to you, Dig, and you Okay, absolutely. Mikey12 says, Welcome to my hometown, Colin. South Philly, born and raised. Nice represent on the playground is where i spend most of my days <laughs> i would like to know if or how playstation one changed you as a gamer for me growing up with nes made me a gamer but ps1 made me the gamer i am today i had no clue what a jrpg was before final fantasy 7 we were just talking about there that there you go that a game could create atmosphere horror before resident evil which we have to talk about absolutely or that games could surpass movie narratives before metal gear solid another game we have to talk about I stopped looking at the graphics on the back of the box to promote or rent a rental or check out the latest game based on my favorite movie. It made me want more from games and at the same time let me know that this was a hobby I would never give up for years to come. That's a great point. Well said. I love the games like Shovel Knight and, you know, these, you know, obviously the upcoming Bloodstained and Chasm and these games that are definitely throwbacks to the games that we grew up with. But yeah. you're right. This showed a whole different side of games. We were getting games that were trying to be graphically ambitious with games like Star Fox and Pilot Wings. And we, we were getting games that were trying to be ambitious with their stories, usually in these crude Japanese role-playing games. But combining it all together and getting these games like Metal Gear Solid, getting these games like Resident Evil, impossible games to ever put on a cartridge at the time. And so it changed me as a gamer in a very similar way, I think. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly. The game scaled up. I think the game scaled up in size and scope, but they also scaled up in content. You know, uh, as we all know, I know it's so, that's sort of a simple thing to say, and we all realize that inherently. But they, the games, became something more. It opened up, especially if you think about it from the devs' point of view. It opened up the world of creating video games. It didn't have to be a JRPG, and it didn't have to be a side-scrolling game. And it did, you know, like you said, we did have those more inventive things where they started to journey out and do thing, try things like Pilot Wings and Star Fox and all those games. But this opened up the possibility for what a video game could be because of what the system was capable of and what a CD-based system was capable of. And we saw that. And, you know, we sort of grew... We, the games were growing up as we were growing up as well. Especially if you were a little... Like, especially, I would say, Colin, your age. You know, I was already in college, but, you know, you were growing up as the games are growing up in, in terms of content and subject matter. And... 
gameplay and graphics and everything. You know, it was just it was just a complete. You know, so I almost like envision little kids like my kids have like the growth chart. We grew like a couple of feet. You know what I mean? It was like the the growth was a couple of inches. You know, you had you go back to the late seventies and home consoles with Atari and NES and SNES and you know you were growing incrementally by inches. I feel like the the jump to PlayStation was like a couple of feet. That was like whoop everything about it and, and just the whole act of playing with, with the new saving now having to go to memory cards the controllers were more you know more complex the gameplay was more complex it was and of course the going from cartridge media to disc media it was just a really big jump and i i mean now we're going through a big jump with digital and it sort of feels like a pretty big jump now with the current I think the Switch is a little bit of a jump, but it's not as dramatic as what was happening with the first PlayStation landing in our laps, you know. And not only PlayStation, all the discs, you know, Saturn should get a little bit of a, you know, Saturn was there too. Sega was still, that's another thing. Sega was still relevant during this time. It's such an interesting time if you look at the all-encompassing, if you look at the big picture, you know, Sega was still relevant. They were still making hardware. They weren't even on their last hardware iteration yet, you know. Sony was around. Nintendo was scrambling to catch up. It was a really, it's a really interesting time. And I'd actually like to learn even more about it as far as from from a behind the scenes standpoint. I'm always particularly interested in in game developers' perspectives, even more so than the hardware manufacturers, because they were kind of, they were kind of the backbone, but they were sort of the, the unsung heroes, you know, as we all know. So that's my, that's my, you know, broad picture of the of the playstation and you know how it changed gaming yeah i mean you you hit you hit it on the head i don't know how else to put it there were certain things one of the interesting things that i think about the ps1 that people are that are lost on people is the way we played games when we started playing ps1 changed dramatically by the end and we didn't really see that again until we where this idea of how we would play didn't really pan out and so people started, you know, when we when we got our Wii's in 2006, 2007, people were really into the waggle, the motion, the the this sure. new novel way to play. And everyone by the end were super tired of it. Like, yeah. We were like, we don't want to play. The gimmicks like were over it. We saw that with Kinect and stuff like that, too. And PlayStation moved to a lesser extent because it wasn't just popular. So no one really cared anyway. But when we when it came out, there were no there were no analog sticks on it. There were no the controller had no analog sticks. It was it was a basic controller with a d-pad right. like you said the crude d-pad and the face buttons and the triggers and then when ape escape came out and then games started to really necessitate the dualshock controller this new controller ape escape was the first game that required it how far in was that ape escape was 99 i think okay so that's so, actually pretty far in and i think dualshock was 98 because i got oh, a 98 dual, i got okay. a dualshock to play i want to say i got a dualshock to play metal gear solid but i don't think you had to have it that's right. Ape Escape was the first game where you had to have you had to have that controller. That's correct. You're correct about that. So by the end, that was inherent. The idea of having two sticks on a controller started there. N64 had one stick, and then like the C buttons. Even GameCube had its own weird thing with the C stick and the and the analog stick. But the DualShock was the first controller of its kind, really. And so there's an interesting note there with the hardware as well. Yeah. Alex Castellanos says, "File this under PS1." The trio of Final Fantasy games that came out for the PlayStation are rather divisive. Either people love one and hate the others, or they think they're all good but incomparable to the SNES offerings or the PS2 games. My question is this. Why is Final Fantasy VIII better than Seven and Nine, And why don't more people recognize it for the gem that it is? <laughs> wow. Bold, Alex. You're insane. Um, <laughs> Final Fantasy VIII 
I don't know. I you and I don't agree on Final Fantasy. Yeah, let's so just start. So let's, let's start let's, there. Let's talk to talk to me about it. Okay. Final Fan. This is my perspective, Alex. Thank you for writing and thank you for being so courageous because I know this is there are some there are some backers of Final Fantasy, but they're not. It's not too common. First of all, I think. I always felt a little bad for Final Fantasy VIII because from my perspective, I think I like Final Fantasy VII more than Colin does. I'm a big proponent proponent of Final Fantasy VII, but Final Fan- let's be honest, Final Fantasy VII is a tough act to follow. That game, <laughs> you know, that game is very, that's one of the most, you could argue that's one of the most important video games in history and a, a very beloved game for a lot of reasons. You know, all the reasons that we know. The scope, the size, the characters, the story, you know, it took everything that was in those beloved SNES Final Fantasy games and made it in 3D. Now we're summoning monsters like, you know, like we did in Final Fantasy 4 and Final Fantasy 6, but now it's in 3D. Look, I mean, the size of it, the sheer magnitude of that game was so impressive, and Final Fantasy 8... I always liked Final, while feeling bad for it, I also really always appreciated Final Fantasy VIII because it tried to do something different. It tried to do something different with the art direction, the world that it set the game in, the, the gameplay mechanics. It didn't, I think Sony probably could have rested on the laurels of Final Fantasy VII a little more than they did. You and mean it, Square. Oh, sorry. I, I think Square really could have... protecting you from the fans. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think Square really... Yeah, thank you for that. Square really did. They could... I mean, think about it. They could have really rested on the laurels of Final Fantasy VII and tried something that felt... You know, kind of took the, the easy road and tried something that felt very Final Fantasy VII. But instead, they really kind of experimented... And tried something different. And I always liked Final Fantasy VIII. It wasn't... it was, It's not as dynamic in any way. I would say Final Fantasy VII had probably... For me. I think Final Fantasy VII had a larger scope. It had better gameplay. It had better art direction. I think Sony was really trying to push the graphical capabilities. They were... Squ- by, by the... Uh, Square. Square, sorry. I think Square was really... <laughs> sorry, guys. Maybe it's the S thing. I don't know what's going on. I'll just I'll just look at that square. Well, we're talking about PlayStation One. Yeah. So. Well, I'll just look at that square. Okay. There you my go. my square shelf, so I can constantly remind myself. Yeah, Square. Obviously, like like any ga- good game dev would do, they were the, they were using the same console. They knew how to squeeze more out of it at that point graphically. They were definitely doing that with Final Fantasy VIII, even though the style was different. It's a matter of preference, but you know the the graphics are you know really impressive for its time. And I love I love the opening, um, the opening of Final Fantasy VIII. I think it's very well done, very dramatic. The opening fight scene with the sword coming down and the thunder and the lightning and the feathers and Squall and it's really really neat. But I really liked Final Fantasy VIII. I actually liked the draw system a lot. I actually enjoyed that. I thought there was some really inventive. I'm like a big fan of summoning. I think it's so cool. I think there was some really inventive summoning. I always liked Diablos. I thought he was so cool. I just fucking love, that's like one of my favorite summons of all time. It's so neat. I don't know if you remember it. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, and I really, you know, this is funny too. A lot of people laugh at me. I really liked Triple Triad. I was like kind of addicted to it for a while. You know, I love I love Triple Triad. I would like turn the game on to play Triple Triad, and I 
I was so into triple triad that maybe other people could relate to this too. Like I would make sure during my quest, I would save, I would jump into triple triad just in case I lost some cards that I didn't want to lose. And then if it was going bad, boop, I would just shut the system right off so I wouldn't lose. You know, so I was like really into it. I was playing triple triad. I took a break from playing that game, the quest in that game to play triple triad for months. (laughs) Like that's how into it I was. I don't know. That game fell. That game might have also fallen. I was I was a professional. I was already graduated from college. I was comfortable. I had an apartment. So that game just came along at the right time. I think I was playing games a lot at that time. I think that whole era, like Final Fantasy VIII, Parasite Eve was a big one. Brave Fencer, Musashi was one. Xeno Gears, Metal Gear Solid. All those games, I was like that. That particular clump of Resident Evil Two, I guess at that point it was. I was like really into gaming at that point. So Final Fantasy VIII was right in the center of that. So I always really liked it. I it's not. I would disagree with you, Alex. That it's better. First of all, I have to admit I've never played Final Fantasy IX. I want to do it at an episode if Colin wants to do it on games that we never played, games that we feel like we should have played that we just didn't. Be a lot of PC games for me. Er- Earthbound is another one I never played. I, oh really? Oh yeah. Sorry, you told, yeah you told I'm me gonna that. lose a lot of street cred with that one, but I've never played Earthbound. Oh, whatever. I, I, we'll, we'll, I'll say that. For, I, I, I can't pick any fights right now. I'll just. Say yeah, yeah. Never played Earthbound. Not um, with you, with the audience, because I'm sick of hearing about it. <laughs> yeah, as if it's, yeah. As if it's like this be-all, end-all game. Give me a break. <laughs> it's not. Give me a fucking break. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. So nine, I never played, but I can compare. I can compare it to seven. I would not put the only Final Fantasy games I would put above seven or four and six, for me, for me personally. And I think, but I do have an appreciation. I hear you, Alex. I have an appreciation for Final Fantasy. I think it's a good game. It's just not Final Fantasy VII for me. For me. Sure, 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 sure. All right, so where do you weigh in on this, my friend? So for the trilogy of Final Fantasy games on PlayStation, I think that Nine is definitely the best one. Although, I mean, that's a totally subjective thing. Nine, there's a there's a genetic code that's shared between Seven and Eight because all three of them were developed really quickly, like back to back to back. It, getting three PlayStation three PlayStation centric Final Fantasy games in four years, yeah, which is what happened, is that's, a lot. That's amazing. And but I think nine, like I said, was different enough. Nine had the if 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 I was given a choice in a vacuum, this isn't always true because, like you said, there's a uh, Wild Arms is a cyber western, and Final Fantasy VI is really cyberpunkish or yeah. steampunkish. I yeah, say. steampunk, steampunk, not cyberpunk, but steampunkish. Full steam. So you have yeah. like Edgar with his auto crossbow and and chainsaw and stuff like that alongside cyan who fights with like a samurai sword so it's it's eclectic so there's that but i look at the situation as it is and i'm like eight is just eight's not a bad game it's just a week from my perspective it's just the weakest of the bunch i i I think that's obviously again subjective someone can make the case that eight's the best game of all time and i'm not going to necessarily tell you you're wrong but yeah it's pretty common to think that eight's the weakest of the three i think I think that there's a little bit of re- revisionism about nine. People were pretty hard about nine when it came out. I, re- I remember, I remember that. that. I do remember that too. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we had already known, we'd seen PS2. We It was right on the horizon. It was like a few months away, really. Mm-hmm. And I think people just expected and wanted more, but it was exactly what I wanted because it was this, this, it was this more lush fantasy world. There are Moogles in it and like weird shit like that were throw, nice throwbacks to the stuff that I loved about those games. The thing that the interesting thing that he says to me here is not that is not the comparison to the Super Nintendo games. So when Alex says um, that you know incomparable to the SNES offerings or PS2 games, I don't know many people in my own experience working in the gaming industry that made any case for the PS2 role playing the P, for either PS2 role playing games or PS2 Final Fantasy games as being anywhere on the level 
of what came before. Yeah. A lot of people really love 10, which I think is very easily, except for maybe 13, the worst Final Fantasy game. Yeah. And that includes the more obscure shit like 2 and 3 and 5. Right. I think 5 is actually really great. I think 5 is better than the PS1. Never played that. But... It's it's job based. It's awesome. Oh yeah, I remember you telling me that. It's really great. So you can play as like hunter or hunter and a ninja and all that kind of That's stuff. That's cool. It, less about their, their characters and stories. The X death is the is the bad guy in it, but it's less about that and more about like the job system, kind of like Final Fantasy Tactics. That's not the first game that had the job system. The job system goes all the way back to Final Fantasy. Really was robust in Final Fantasy three, which we did not get until two thousand seven or two thousand six. So it's it, that was a DS game port. We never got the the native port of it. On, on that was a Famicom game. So. There's that thing, but I, I look at this this claim of the PS2 role. Like we got Final Fantasy 10, 11, and twelve on PS2. Eleven isn't really doesn't really count. So, and I say that not not to be divisive. It's it's an MMO. It doesn't count. It's like it's like saying well, Fantasy Star one, two, three, and four, and Fantasy Star Online. It's yeah, like, no, no it's, not different. it's different. It's different. It's different. So, and I again, we can talk about Fantasy Star in the future because I have no idea what the fuck they're doing with Fantasy Star. Fantasy Star five, people waited for twenty three years for that game. Yeah, but I, I feel really bad for those fans. I do too because Fantasy Star is awesome. It is, especially two and four. So ten, <laughs> I'll save it for another time. I fucking hate that game. I really do. And and I really, when it came to PS3 and Vita in 2013 or 2014, I was at IGN. I started playing it on Vita because I want. I actually begged Square to like send me an early copy of it, like a really early copy. I had it really early because I was like, I really want to revisit. Oh, they gave it to you. Yeah, they did. Okay, okay. They wouldn't do it anymore. They did it because oh, IGN, but they like. They sent me such an early copy on Vita that it was like on a CD and you had to like do this ripping shit to it. Oh, so, wow. And like you couldn't even really do it because the that's a whole nother story. The Vita was all fucked up. But <laughs> and it is all fucked up. But the I I hate 10. I can't stand that game. I can't stand the characters. I can't stand the gameplay. I can't stand fucking whatever Blitzball, Titus or whatever, Titus or whatever the hell his name, Titus is his name. And yeah, I think I think that's his name. Yeah, and I the voice acting's terrible. The laughing scene is that like I the do worst. remember. I just don't get it. This is a pretty common sentiment, though, isn't it? I don't know. It's very divisive. Some people think it's the best Final Fantasy game. I, I really think know. it's a matter of when you grew up. Your 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 access to Final Fantasy slash Japanese role playing games at the time. Yeah. If you're if you were in, I was in twelfth grade or eleventh grade when Final Fantasy Ten came out. It was the first game I ever bought online. And I was super excited about it. This guy I worked with at the deli gym when I worked at the deli bought us both our copies on the line because you get like a $10 discount. So we each got the game for like 45 bucks. Or something. Oh, that's cool. And I brought, I remember bringing like running home, you know, I, I bike, used to bike to work. It was like three miles. I had my BMX bike and I would, I would scurried home and I put it in. I'm like, oh. I immediately I was like, Ugh. and I remember you and I played it because there was a demo with shit. What? What game came with the Final Fantasy X demo? It was the Bouncer, I think, or something like that. Was it Bouncer or was it... Uh, Which is a, it was a much better game than people think it is, by the way. Yeah, it might have been. That might have been it. And anyway, I remember you and I had the demo. It was like on a beach and yeah. you fought like this big spider enemy. And I remember us being like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah. I, I remember you and I played it for the first time together in my bedroom. In, I think in, I remember this. At the old house in Woodland. And 12 came out when I was in college. I was a junior... I was a senior in college, actually, when it came out. Okay. And... So big jump there, six years or so. That is a big jump, five years or something like that. And Final Fantasy XII was tortured. I mean, it was like you know, it had it totally changed like a production team middleway through. You can see when the game changes and stuff like that in the game. But way better. Never than 10. played it. Never way played it. better than ten. But there was a problem with that too, in that it was a pseudo MMO. So 
you could tell it was very inspired by these by Warcraft, not World of Warcraft necessarily, although uh, World of Warcraft was at the time, but like these like almost like Ever EverQuest and stuff like that or whatever it was called. This massive it, it it reminds me of 15 in a way where I'm like I don't understand how this is a Final Fantasy game, but I liked it a lot. So we don't have to get too much in the PS2, but I do take umbrage with that because no, that's okay. I can't imagine in what world you would take seven, eight, and nine, and then compare them to ten and twelve. But Alex was saying that he loves eight. He was saying that he loves eight specifically, but he was also saying that there are some people that make the case for the PS2 games, and I just, I just have to say that's that I think, you're, I think you're insane. If you think I'd like that. to make, I'd like to hear somebody's case for eight being their favorite out of seven, eight, nine, though. I would like to hear why out. Alex, hit, hit me, hit us up on Twitter and let me know why you like those ga- eight better than seven. Don't text me, uh, don't tweet me on Twitter about this. <laughs> Just tweet Dagan because I don't want to hear it. <laughs> You're fresh. Christopher Biesinger says, "PS One, how many consoles did you burn through?" I went through, uh, th- I went through three myself. My launch console sat on its side for over a year before dying. I can't believe that was even a thing. I, my PlayStation still works. We were just talking about this a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. and I. Yeah, yeah. So could- you've gone through how many? Um, I only had one. Oh, you only had one. And I haven't turned my PS1 on probably since 2002 or 2003. The last game that I played on it was Final Fantasy Origins, which came out in 2003, and that was Final Fantasy 1 and 2, which I think were the same ports that we later got on PSP. Uh, but I want to say I even played that on PS2, like because PS2 is obviously a red PS1 game. So I can't even tell you the last time I even turned my PS1 on. It's been, it's been at least 15 years, probably longer. I had to put mine upside down to play, though. I was it wasn't even ask. sideways. It was literally upside down. A lot of people went through that. Mm-hmm. But I remember first hear I don't know when, but I remember first hearing that was a thing, and I was like, "What?" And I'm I'm particularly persnickety with my stuff. Like I'm very careful about my stuff. But yeah, mine still works. Still works fine, you know. So I guess I got lucky. Yeah, know? everyone gets. It's the same thing with like Xbox 360 later, where the Red Ring of Death claimed a bunch, but some people yes. still have like the one that launched, and it still works somehow. It's still fine. So yeah, Dagan and I both had one. I never had a reason to have more than that, and that's surprise. It is. I don't even want to jinx myself, but I've yeah. had really good luck with hardware. I actually don't know any console that I had that ever broke. Did you have a 360? No. Because that what seems to be the most notorious. No, I, I I had one of IGNs for a long time, but I never bought my own. Okay, yeah. Mostly never... because I was poor. I didn't even own a PS3 until 2009 because I was poor. Wow. I just stole one from IGN for a while. Oh, you had one. You had access to it. I would have done it. I would have made the case. I would have done that. Like, I literally would... I literally just had a fat PS3 from IGN at my at my house for two years, and what? then when the PS3 Slim came out and it was two ninety nine, I bought it finally because I, I had no money. You know? Those are the perks, my friend. I mean, that was that was one of the advantages. So yeah, I had an Xbox three six. I had my own Wii, but I had an Xbox. I, so I at that time when I started at IGN in those first few years, I had a, I had my Wii, I had a DS, I had a PSP and a GBA, but that was really kind of dead. You can just use the DS for that. But then I had an IGN Xbox three sixteen and an IGN PS three. Okay, because you had to kind of stay current on everything. Of course, to. of course. And then I never bought my own three sixty. I had an Xbox One, but I gave it away. Yeah, I gave it to Joel, Allie's boyfriend. And oh, you did? Yeah, and yeah, I gave him. I had like a Gears. You of know War what? Edition. I might have one. You might have another. Wait, are you talking about the original Xbox? Oh no, I ha- I have. Oh, the Xbox One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, gave yeah. it to Joel. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh no, my OG Xbox I still have. Yeah, I have stores. it. I have it. Oh, here. okay, cool. It's here. Yeah, I love that console. I really do. It was the first console I ever like fell in love with. I really think that play. thing weighs about sixty pounds. Yeah, it's huge. That thing. This. So when I, li- I for anyone that goes to Northeastern, that li- you know, there might be a few of you out there that did or, or do go there. My sophomore year, I lived in Willis Hall. I lived with Ramon and Ramon, Ramon, and <laughs> there were these shelves above our beds, and next to us, where they were building what would become H Tower, which was where I lived when I was a senior. It's this really beautiful building. I was like one of the first people to live in it, so that was kind of a nice perk, but. 
they were building this thing. It was so loud and so destructive to our sophomore year, like sleeping and stuff like that, that I actually complained and tried to get us to move and they wouldn't move us. <laughs> and my mom worked there. So they, you could tell how far. Yeah, that, that wasn't. They, wow. That was they didn't give a flying. Wow. Flight. And I think that might have been the, one of the only times I ever tried to pull a card where I'm like, come on, man, you know, I'm Colin Moriarty. <laughs> my, my mom's, you know, an advisor and so, and they were like, OK, see ya. So anyway, I tell you that only because they were pile driving the the beams for the building into the ground. And the, I hadn't I didn't have my Xbox plugged in. I had like my PS2 and GameCube plugged in. So it was on this top shelf and everything was moving like games were falling on me as I was sleeping. And I looked up. <laughs> And the Xbox was literally like teetering. No. And if that thing fell on me, it might have killed. Like, I'm not even trying to be dry. It might kill me. No, it could have definitely killed. And me. then we would have had an awesome lawsuit on our hands. Everyone would be rich. <laughs> so it's almost a shame for the Moriarty thing that didn't happen. <laughs> but I, I remember that because I'm like, yeah, if my GameCube fell on me, I probably would have left a really bad bruise or something like that. But if the, or my NES, but if the because the NES is really light, but if that that Xbox fell on my head, it would have been game over for me. So yeah, there's that. Next question, comment, concern. Comes from Leo Maniscalchi, who says, Hey, Colin and Dagan, this is for the PlayStation 1 topic. I often hear Colin talk about the insane amount of great RPGs for the system. I'm a huge fan of RPGs from this generation, but only know the basics everyone knows about. Final Fantasy VII, Final Fantasy IX, Chrono Cross, which is a great game, Final Fantasy Tactics, etc. I want to know about some deeper cuts that a fan of these games should play. Also, if you have the time and inclination, do the top five best RPGs on the system. Thanks, guys, and keep up... Excuse me, I broke there. The great work. Very nice. I don't think we have to do a top five because we talked about Wild Arms. We've talked about a few of the other games. But are there any other deep cuts or games in the role-playing genre that you want to give a shout-out to that were on PS1? PS, PlayStation, deep cuts, just RPG? No, I think we... For me, at least the ones that I had a reference point for, at least the ones I played, the ones I would say that were notable, of course, Wild Arms and Final Fantasy VII. Those are the first two. I also really liked that we are, I already talked about Final Fantasy VIII. I and we already talked about. No, we we talked about them all. I mean, we talked. I mean, we talked about Xenogear. We didn't really talk about it, but you know, we talked about. We talked. We we already mentioned it. I don't know that I played any other ones on the console, besides the ones we talked about. What about for you? What do you? Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. So I mean, because this is this is this is, <laughs> this is my wheelhouse. Nerdy Colin High School wheelhouse. Yeah. So one game I'd give a shout out to is Tales of Destiny. Tales of Destiny, I love, I love, love, love that yeah, game. Yeah, never and played. The tale, and the Tales series still continues. And I read something recently still that I thought was really interesting. I don't know who wrote it. Basically saying like your favorite Tales game is probably the Tales game you played first. There are like fourteen of them now. I've played them all, and it's true. Like I went back and played Tales of Destiny recently in the last few years. It's the second Tales game. Tales of Fantasia is the first one. We didn't get Tales of Fantasia. That was a Super Famicom game. We didn't get it until it came to Game Boy Advance several years later. But Tales of Destiny was just, it, it invoked something in me. I remember getting it. I got it for my birthday, October 14, 1998, when I was in ninth grade. I asked for it. It was in PlayStation Magazine. I had every issue of PSM from the first issue all the way through college. So this was like a magazine I absolutely loved. And they were really toting this game and, and going crazy with it. And I really just fell in love with it. It filled me with a sense of awe, of wonder. I loved the characters. I loved the combat. When we went to Icon, which we mentioned on another, sure. on another podcast, I got this like bootleg poster of it. Couldn't believe they had a Tales of Destiny poster. I, was I think like, I might remember your Tales of Destiny poster. It was, it was like kind of it was pink, and it had the characters on it. It yeah. was like something someone made on like their computer. It was definitely yeah, not, yeah, it was yeah. definitely not official. <laughs> and but it was awesome. I loved it. I bought I bought all sorts of weird shit. Like that's why I bought like a Magic Knight Ray Earth poster, and I bought like I remember that. Too. I bought a Dragon Ball poster, and I don't know some other shit. And you gave me some of your old Dragon Ball stuff as well. 
And so that game means a lot to me. So I would I would give a shout out to Tales of Destiny. Tales is not so obscure anymore. Tales, other than Final Fantasy Dragon Quest Persona, is probably the biggest and best role playing series to this day that does it regularly. I know people like Star Ocean. I know people like some others, for, you know, series. But in terms of like regular releases, like these games come out every eighteen months or so and have for which is so cool for two and a half. Who's decades. the dev? Namco. Oh, that's right. It's in, internal. That's right. A guy named Hideo Baba is the director, or was he left recently? And he was one of the few Japanese guys that didn't speak English that knew who I was. And when I would see him oh, that's at, cool. at shows or whatever, very friendly guy. knew I was a huge Tales fan. Really friendly to me. Because I went to Namco a few times in in Japan to interview them and to talk to them and stuff like that. And yeah. They were always really impressed how much I knew about Tales because that is such a Japanese series. And there's a, obviously an American fan base. They obviously localized all the games. But they they liked that I knew what I was talking about. And that was really cool. And if anyone ever gets to go to the Namco, Namco Bandai building in Tokyo... It's a pyramid. It's a giant pyramid. So cool. With like, uh, you walk in and it's like this open, it's not literally like, I guess it's not literally a pyramid. It's like, it's shaped somewhat like that with this wide open space where it's like a huge open space. 90% of the building is just this open area. And then along the walls are all these offices and you take these stairs up and like go to all these. I offices. love that. Really, really cool. That's super Definitely cool. a relic of their, um, of their arcade money back in the day with Pac-Man. Absolutely. This guy, and this guy's been running... The series until recently. Yeah, yeah, from he the, ran from it from onset. like Tales, Tales of Destiny two maybe or something like that until, until like Tales of maybe Tales of Exilia or something like that. Tales of Exilia. That means a lot when one guy is running something creatively for so long because there's a consistency and a quality. Yeah, and you, you know? can't really even tell the games apart at some point. I mean, unless you're really, really nerdy like I am, because I can tell them apart. That's cool. That's a good. So that's a good one. Tales. Uh, so yeah, I would recommend that. And a game that I would recommend to you highly highly recommended is a game called the legend of Lagaya, and this is a game that my friend scott introduced to me in high school and i hadn't i saw it in psm but it wasn't a game that appealed to me mostly because when it was being talked about in preview and review coverage it was being talked about as a fighting game and i like fighting games ps1 was a seminal fighting machine for me i love the alpha games on there street fighter uh, versus x-men was a really great game That's right there was a lot of really cool stuff on there so i'm not i'm not hating on it for that reason but it just wasn't quite what i was looking for but what it really was was a role-playing game a traditional role-playing game where in battles you were fight you were it was a fighting game so i gotta it was, play this game. it was really really unique where it was like a technical game where there was like a bunch of commands and you learn more and more about them. Like your, your shit got, you can like link your attacks together. And there was a sequel too as well. But you like linked your attacks together. And it was like you would do like Dragon Punch like moves or Hadouken like moves and stuff like that. And it was just really, really oh, cool. Oh, I, I love really, this. I, really, really, really I got to definitely play this game. I'm writing it down. So it was kind of like if you think about Final Fantasy VI on SNES, Sabin had a, a move set where it was fighting moves. And you like, he would jump up to attack. And if you did it wrong, he would just jump back. I loved it. Which that. was awesome. So like he wouldn't even attack at all. That, he would blew, just jump back. that blew my mind when and, that came out. And uh, Or you could just attack regularly and he would just do much less damage. So I would definitely recommend that game. And a third game I would recommend is a game called Thousand Arms, which is. It, it, which is unassociated from Wild Arms. It has nothing to do with each other. No, yeah. And the cool thing about that was it was the first game I played where there were da- deep dating sim aspects to it. I'm not really into that kind of stuff, but as a kid, I was like, this is really quite unique. I never saw anything Something like this before. Something different, sure. There was a big walkthrough on GameFAQs that really helped me with it because it was so deep and so like so ridiculously deep in that regard. I was like, I can't do this all myself. I, I felt like I was missing something or I was not, you know, romancing the girls properly. So, so there's a just lack in real life. Just exactly. Yeah, I was never romancing the girls right to this day. I'm 33. So I would, I would recommend the game thousand arms as well, but obviously you hit on a lot of the big ones. A, a lot of the big square games 
were really some of the best games of the time. And there was, you know, Dragon Warrior 7, they still called the Dragon Warrior in the States at the time, is another really great and somewhat underappreciated role-playing game. It's super fucking long. Well over 100 hours, which even for wow, some of these... is it really? Yeah, even for these games is, is way too long. That's huge. I can't, I can't imagine how big Dragon Quest XI is going to be. It's probably, probably going to be my full-time job. Can't wait to play it. September 4th. It looks so good. It does look great. It really does. It looks so much fun. I love those games. It was so nice when they released... Um, Dragon Quest 4, 5, and 6 on DS. DS, yeah. In anticipation of 9. Yeah. Which is another great game. Because I had never, we never got 5 and 6 in the States. So those were the first times we ever got localized. Because we had 1, 2, 3, and 4 on NES. And then we had nothing on SNES. 5 and 6 came out on Super Famicom. But for some reason, NX didn't bring them here. Yeah, they didn't port them. And I don't know why that was. I guess maybe 4 and 3 didn't sell that well. They sold well enough to bring all four of them. Something happened there. I don't then, know. Then NX 7 came weird. over late. 8 came on PS2. And then 9 came on DS. And then 10 was an MMO that was a Wii game. Right. That we never got here. And then 11, obviously, is a PS4 game. And it's I think it's also actually on Switch. Yeah, you know what? That's the game that I was trying to think of. They said there's going to be a Switch version where it's going to take a super long time to port it. Oh, did they say that? I think that's the game. Remember I was trying to, I was telling you, I just heard this about the Switch version. I think that's what it was. I think that's what Square Enix had said. There's going to be a Switch version, but don't hold your hand on your ass. Brandon Hardy says, hi, Colin and Dagan. Hello. What are your memories of the Resident Evil trilogy? Mm. Do you remember the first time you saw the screen stating the game contained seeds of explicit violence and gore? What are your thoughts on the first Parasite Eve? I was just going to talk. And and she, and he also says, how do you feel about Amy Hennig's work on Legacy of Kane, Soul Reaver? I have so many fond memories of the PS1, and I'm super excited for this episode. Knockback rules. Thanks, guys. Oh. Thank you, Brandon. All right, so let's take these one at a time. Thanks, dude. Resident Evil. Yeah. What are your memories of that game? Very seminal, very important game. Blew my mind. I was so excited for it because I knew it was going to be a Capcom game. And, uh, you know, then and now, very big Capcom fanboy I am, of course. Scared the hell out of me. It actually, that game really, I mean, it's it's not, like, I think people probably know by now it's not too easy to scare the hell out of me. But Resident Evil scared me. That was a scary game. And I wouldn't play it at night in my apartment by myself. <laughs> you know, that was my, that was, you know, that was my, I thought it was actually, it was, it was different for it. For its time it would fit you know there was a there was different play mechanics that i thought it was actually pretty difficult it had you know it sort of as we all know it sort of had that metal gear solid feel of like stealth and not being able to just you know not, sometimes you had to run sometimes you had to hide you couldn't just attack you couldn't just be on the offensive it had, that was one of the big things that struck it struck me about it because i i what i personally wasn't familiar with any games like that at that point and it was scary i thought it was a scary game resident evil 2 resident evil 2 i liked even better i thought that game was amazing you know but those are my very i very fondly and i think i i'm very fond of those games and i know they've capcom's improved on resident evil obviously and it's a very important franchise for them and they the, you know, it just got better and better. But the, the first two Resident Evil games are very special to me. I'm very nostalgic about them. And I think they hold up in their own way because when they came out, they were pretty far ahead of their time, you know? So that's my... Where do you stand on those two? Yeah, I think... We so, never talked about Resident Evil, you and I. I want to say Nemesis I played on Dreamcast, but I could be making that up. I played the first two on... Nemesis being the third one. The first two I... I never played that Played on PS1. Okay. And I remember very vividly playing the first one on PS1. I was at my friend. I lived in New Hampshire at the time. I was at my friend Steven's house. He was the other goalie on my travel hockey team. We were okay. really close friends. 
and my, and mom and his mom were really close friends. They were both single moms and they kind of connected. And so we were together a lot and I would often go over there. He would come to my house on like a Friday. We'd have two games, one Saturday, one Sunday. So we would have practice late. We, I, I mean, all I did was play hockey when I was a kid. So <laughs> these teams were dead serious, by the way. And I've often said like my travel teams were dead serious. They would beat my high school team for sure. And we were like literally 10 or 12. <laughs> That's amazing. Like when I was a senior in high school, our team would have gotten fucking rocked. Serious business. Would have gotten absolutely rocked by the teams I was playing on when I was like 10, 12, 13. So we would we would often, just for the ease, because we would play it all over New England, we would drive all over the goddamn place, sometimes to Quebec or Vermont. Wow. You know, up in up I didn't Bangor, know you went that far. Holy and, cow. And in Maine. I think we went to Presque Isle once and stuff like that. It was like, which is, you know, up by Caribou, like really fucking far wow. away so there was a lot of driving and and i knew actually one of the this girl that was on our team becky who was really good she actually ended up playing at northeastern hmm. um later on and i saw her randomly and i'm like you go here you know like and she's like yeah I play hockey here and i'm like that doesn't surprise me <laughs> she had like one of those cool vans that her dad you know her dad had that had the tv in it and so if we had to go from like new hampshire to connecticut to play a game or something like that we would just play like Mega Man x or something like that on the tv and so Steven and I would like spend a lot of time together and he rented Resident Evil. We went, we went to a video store and what I remember about going to the video store that day was that they had NES games still. It was like this random video store that had like a shit ton of NES games and SNES games and this was like 1996, it was 97 I think. And I was like, this is insane. This is so cool. And But we rented Resident Evil and I was, I never played anything like it before. The tank controls are terrible when you go back and play it. Yes. But that we didn't it's funny because you can see in the genetics of the game like we're trying to figure out how to exist in the space how do you move in the space this was pre dual shock so you had to use the d-pad to move so it was like a thing where they didn't quite solve the problems yet the hardware wasn't able to solve the problems yet especially so the tank for people that don't know what tank controls are Good go point. and experience those and you'll really be thankful for what we have today <laughs> Thank the God ability, you, you the ability to that. move and strafe independently from the camera is, exactly. a, is a huge was a huge revolution that PC games were doing first, but there was no solution for that on the console until the tools, two sticks were put in. But the things that I, I there were certain things about it that I, I took with me forever that I always loved and that they abandoned in the later Resident Evil games, which bothered me. One is that you can only save a finite amount of times. That was like one of the things that I loved about it the most. And I loved that immediately. I was like, wow, that is so great, strange. Great point. So in the game, in the original Resident Evil, in the original Resident Evil games up through, I want to say Zero, which is a GameCube game, they you had ink ribbons that you'd use in typewriters to save your game. And you only had a certain amount of them. So you could try to push your luck and go and go and go and save your ink ribbons. And I always finished with ink but ribbons. But you might get killed. Exactly. Yeah. And I always, always, always had ink ribbons in my like in my inventory when I beat one of those games. I was like, well, what a waste. I should have just like... I, oh, really? Because I was always afraid to save. You never knew when the game was going to end. Yeah, I was always right on the edge with those. And so I loved that. I, and I know a lot of people hate that. And I think they brought something similar into Resident Evil 7 as an option, but I, I beat Resident Evil 7, but I did not play it that way. But I loved that there was like a thing where it was like the very act of survival meant that you just could not save your progress. And it was, it added this layer of fear to the game and tension to the game because it wasn't like you can just like incrementally go kill a zombie, grab some ammo, then back up and go to the save room and stuff like that. You would have to spend an increment to yeah, do that. Yeah, absolutely. So it forced you to really be careful. It forced you to play the game very deliberately. Yes. Which is cool. And, and and deliberate play is not a common thing in games. The games that do that best today are Dark Souls and Bloodborne. The games that make you play very deliberately. Like there's no room, and Neo does it too, no room for error. You think you're comfortable. You've seen this enemy five times and you're like, oh, I'll just run up to it and then he just fucking kills you. Yeah. You know, like I, 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 it's, it's, 
it wasn't appealing to me until Bloodborne came out, and then it became very appealing to me. Yeah, I loved it. I, I finally got it. So I remember that, and I remember the in a similar vein, the finite ammo. That just that a game counted your ammo was weird, and, and in a game like Mega Man that counted your ammo, like your special weapon ammo, you could always fill it up by like farming enemies and stuff like. There was none of that in this. There yeah. was a set amount of ammo in the game. Yeah, and that was it. Yep. So and you had your knife and <laughs> yeah, you had the you, your melee weapons or whatever. But yeah, you're right. That and that and it, but that those two th- mechanics lent to the tension and the survival aspect of the game and the realism of the game. Those mechanics were important. They were innovative at the time. Absolutely. You know, and it might have it might be the first game. I might be off with this, but it might be one of my first games where there was an element of crafting in it as well. Yeah, yeah, you could like combine herbs to make like right a more, to make more heal salves and yeah. heal potions and remedies. And yeah, stuff the sprays like that. and stuff. Right. right, so that might be the one of the first that you know wasn't it wasn't intricate by any means, but it, another inventive mechanic that they put in there, you know, to lend to the, you know, that whole feel of the you know of the of a survival horror game. I was always a little confused, like where did you get the aerosol can? <laughs> I don't know. But what I loved about that game, too, was that... And Resident Evil 7 did this really well, actually, on PS4. And I recommend that game a lot. I think that game's great. It was the first good Resident Evil game in a long time. Is It was the first like truly good Resident Evil game, in my opinion, since 4. So it was a long time coming. 4 is obviously really the high point of the series in a lot of ways. But there's this 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 notion of... Well, there's this idea in in, in Resident Evil that you are contained in this entity that is in itself a character. The mansion in the in Resident Evil Zero, it's like the train in the beginning and stuff like that. Like you're in this finite claustrophobic space. And what I love about the Resident Evil games is when you find a typewriter, it's like there's like a little bit of music playing in the background. It's like there might be a bed in the corner. You don't get to use it. There's books and notes and stuff like that and you don't really get to read them. But it's like it indicates to you like, oh, you can rest here. Like in, in, the, in the game, like the character can like take it easy here. The, you lock the door, you're quiet. The zombies don't know you're there, and you can maybe sleep or a little, a little bit. It, it added a little bit of storytelling to the game. Absolutely, atmosphere, which I really loved. And Resident Evil Seven did that really well too, and I really loved that about it. Where I was like, oh, I was in this cozy nook in this really scary house, and I can breathe for a minute, you know. So I really liked that about Resident Evil. Tony Colton says, "Hi, Dagan and Colin. This Hello. question is twofold for the PS1 topic. What do you think was the biggest factor behind the success of the original PlayStation, and what do you consider the hidden gems on the console that players may have missed?" Thanks again for the good work and looking forward to all these topics. We've kind of answered the latter question, Tony, so I'm not going to revisit that. But I do want to touch on your first one, on your first point, which was, what do you think is the biggest factor behind the success of the original PlayStation? What would you think that would be, Dave? My first instinct is just to say the quality of the games across genre, across genre. There was there was high quality games of every of every ilk. I don't know. This sounds almost cliched, but I would say just the fact of having uh, mature gaming i would say probably i would i you know again i'm i'm sort of guessing because i was a little older when it came out i was already a college student like i said but i think it kind of got its claws into wanting to i mean maybe if you really want to go back and give credit where credit is due sega sega genesis and specifically sega cd maybe did this first to a smaller degree but it got its hooks into gamers and said oh come over here kid like this is where the big kids are playing this isn't Nintendo games. This isn't Mario. You know, I think they went and sort of grab. I think Sony went and sort of grabbed them that way. Even if they weren't necessarily marketing it that way, it was very clear to see that this was like the next step up from the content that we had largely already. You know, 
with the exception, like I said, Genesis was doing that a little bit. At least they were marketing them. Sega was marketing themselves that way. And the Sega CD did have the, that content before anybody else did, really, I would say. So I would say the I would say the quality both the quality of the games and the maturity of the games was that was something new. Now we're used to that. We're used to all these games. We're used to Grand Theft Auto. We're used to Resident Evil, Silent Hill, the Metal Gear Solid games, you know, Bloodborne and, you know, Overwatch and all the things we have now, but back then this was new. You know, this was really opening up to a whole new world of what gaming could be. And I would say those both the quality and the content of the games was really what I think that was the that was the hook. I agree with you. I think it's the breadth of the games and the accessibility of the games because it's funny to look back at these games now and 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 they look. I think that the worst looking games ever are the PS One and N sixty four era of like of polygonal gaming and Saturn Two. They look terrible. <laughs> Not all of them. They're and I want because I want to talk about Symphony of the Night and games like that that look absolutely stunning. Oh wow! Because they stuck the tradition, but the games that tried to explore the 3D space and didn't really know how to do it, these guys were pioneers. They were figuring it out. I, I told a story when I did the history of Naughty Dog at IGN that it's really interesting that in a vacuum, independent from one another, Sega, Nintendo, and Sony c- came to conclude different conclusions about what 3D games should be. And you saw that with Mario 64, you saw that with Crash Bandicoot, and you saw that with Knights. And right. right, and they were total three different visions of what 3D would be. So Mario 64 was like it should be open, but they had to sacrifice the look for that. Mario 64 looks like garbage. There's no textures on anything. You right. know, it's a little loose and a little weird. It's very flat. Knights was like on rails, but allowed you to explore this interesting. It wasn't necessarily on rails, but it was like bringing you through hoops and stuff like that. Where it was like we guide you through the 3D world. And so it looked a little bit better. And then Crash Bandicoot was like, we're going to make a game that's very similar to the games you play, but in a 3D space. So they're basically side-scrollers. And sometimes you're walking to or from the camera. But it's still like this finite, linear game. And so they got to make it a little prettier because it's not open. So it's always interesting how they they came to three different conclusions. Obviously, Mario 64 is the most popular of those conclusions. So I think you're right. It's the breadth of the games. And, and I, I bring that up only because it's like, I remember people being like, wow, this looks so real. This looks so lifelike, and it really doesn't. But when you are so used to looking at Super Mario Brothers on NES or SNES, or you're so used to looking at Final Fantasy II or something, and then you see Tomb Raider, which looks awful. But back then, it was like, wow. Right. What the hell is this? And why are our boobs triangular? Because it was so so new. Exactly. Yeah. If you look at it in context historically, it really is striking how what a jump it was. It's a huge paradigm shift. Huge. Absolutely gigantic. I forgot, actually, by the way, with Brandon Hardy's question, which we answered earlier, asked earlier. He asked about Parasite Eve and, and Legacy of Kane. I don't have that much to say about Legacy of Kane. I don't think you do either, probably. Do you? No, no. But Parasite Eve, he asked what we thought about the first Parasite Eve. There are only three Parasite Eve games, two of them on, on PS1, and then there's one on PSP called uh, Third Birthday, I think. Oh, okay. No, and I, you introduced me to Parasite Eve. Yeah. You and PJ. Yes. And because I, I knew about it. On, I knew about everything because I had PSM and I was obsessed with it. But and I was obviously online at that time, too, but I couldn't afford it. And what was so intriguing to me about it was that it was a Squaresoft game that didn't seem like a Squaresoft game. I didn't know that they were capable of making something like that, but I really loved it. It was it took place in New York and it was it was scary. I remember being really frightening. So what are your what are your memories of it? Yeah, I remember being the the long and the short of it with Parasite Eve was I always thought 
they were marketing this game, Square was marketing this game way ahead of when it came out. And from the first time I heard of it, I was like, I'm in. This sounds amazing. And they were showing some, they were showing early screen grabs and everything. I think what we ended up getting, I think the idea was a lot better than what we, the overall concept was a lot better than we what we ended up getting. But it was still very different for its time. It almost had, it almost felt a little bit like Resident Evil mixed with the RPG elements and it was in a modern setting. And I believe she was a cop, correct? Was she? Yeah, she was a police officer. She was yeah. a police officer. Yeah. And it was, like Colin said it took place in modern day New York City. And it was really, I loved the idea of it. I remember, I want to go back and play it again because I haven't played it in so long. But I remember, I, I like the Resident Evil games, I was, I was a college student and maybe just into my first job when that game came out. And so I didn't have a lot of money. But I went out and bought that game um, because I was so into what it could have been. You know, I don't think I don't think they pulled it off to the degree that they could have pulled it off. But I did like it. I did enjoy the game. You know, it was something really different. I never. I don't remember this. I don't remember the second one. I don't remember. I had it, but I don't remember. I think it might even be on the shelf. But I don't have. Okay. I don't have specific memories of it either. Okay. What I remember about Parasite Eve was just that it felt very adult. Yes. It was it was tangibly scary. It was scary in different ways than Resident Evil. It was it had this corporate theme to it, similar to Resident Evil, but it was but it took place in a more corporate setting. More like Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, absolutely. Mind, than than Resident Evil, which was more like hokey. And so yeah, but it was just it was emblematic of that square soft era where they were just doing lots of different stuff. Like there were like Tobal number one and Urgies and all, there was a Bushido Blade. There were a lot of weird. They were doing a lot of stuff there at the time. A lot of and some of the games hit and some of the games didn't. Like Tobal hit less. Urgies is like a really kind of divisive game, and they continue to do that with the Bouncer and on PS2 era and stuff like that. They were putting out a lot of games that were really diverse. They were really at the top of their game in the 90s. What genre would you put Parasite Eve in? What would you say? What kind of it's game? Like a survival horror game, maybe. maybe yeah. Maybe, um, yeah, I think that that probably is the genre that it fits in. Yeah, I wonder what they. I mean, I wonder if I go to like Wikipedia, how they would. Uh, it has RPG elements, but loosely. You know, you're playing as a single character. Yeah, they call it an action role playing game here. I can see that. Yeah, I can. Yeah, see they call it, no, they call it action role playing and survival horror. Okay, so yeah, which is which is accurate. That sounds about right. Yeah, really That's fair. And yeah, what was big about it was, if I remember correctly, yeah, is that there was a demo disc with it that I think showed like Bushido Blade 2 Brave Fencer Musashi Musashi I remember that so that was pretty cool that was a pretty cool like touch alright going back to the questions Andrew says PSX or PlayStation 1 changed the way I view video games saw MGS at a friend's house and played through it in one day my friend was the best and let me play it and just watched me after which I saved my money and bought a PS1 just for Metal Gear Solid Final Fantasy 7 and Final Fantasy 8 were my next two games so this Andrew gives us a good chance to talk about Metal Gear Solid. Okay. You know what? The previous question, he wanted to know a couple of sleeper hits. Oh, okay. Yeah, do you have some of those? Do you actually I don't I would I don't know if Parasite well, I don't know. Did Parasite Eve get the recognition it deserved when it came out? Probably not. I don't think I, I would consider that one that didn't get the shine that maybe it should have gotten. Um I was was really people might laugh, but I was really fond of the first siphon filter game. I really like that game. Sony Bend, yeah. At the time, um, called Ididic. Yeah. Right. Yep. Or were they nine eight nine at that point? No, nine eight nine was different. The the Sony Bend 
was yeah this, until Siphon Filter three I think or Siphon Filter on PS two they were Ida okay. Dick. okay because they were they were the guys that did Bubsy three D I think oh did they really yeah. I think oh, I didn't so. know I gotta that. Look this up. I, I like know that, that because I wrote the history of this. Studio. For whatever reason, I was really fond of that game. I don't have any other ones. All the other games, I feel like the games that I like, Dino, other ones we haven't hit on, Mega Man X Four, I was really fond of. But I feel like all those games, we didn't talk about a big one yet that I want to talk about, but it's certainly not the Twisted Metal series. I mean, those game, those games all got their shine. You know, I I was a big fan of Gran, Tur- Gran Turismo. I'm trying to think. I don't really have any that were necessarily underappreciated besides maybe Parasite Even I, I was fond of Siphon Filter, but I'm not sure where. Of course, the Tony Hawk games, the first two Tony Hawk yes, games. Yes, 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 of course. You know, I mean, they were, I mean, those were huge. Yeah, Tony, the Tony Hawk games were excellent. Um, but we no, can do individual episodes on a lot of these games. I don't want to sure. spend too much time on any of them. No, right? no. But do you have any ones, Kyle, that you could say? I mean, Wild Arms was was and still is underappreciated. Well, this goes into a game, a question we actually had. Yeah, okay. Wild Arms is underappreciated. No one could possibly appreciate it enough. <laughs> but there's a question here that actually plays into this. Okay. Where Ian asks, what were your most rented PS1 games? And mm. to me, th- this is funny because it answers your question on maybe an underrated game. Is The game I rented the most was Azure Dreams, oh, which God. was a Konami game that came out in like 98... And it was basically like a game where you... It's kind of like what Dark Cloud would become later by level 5. And mm. a few other games were like it. I think Good game. Um, That's a great game. Almost like Monster Rancher in a way, which is dead now. But where you would go into this tower over and over again. There was a town that surrounded this tower. You go into this tower and get as high up the tower as you can. Okay. And then have to retreat out of the tower like when you were dying or like... And you would like recruit enemies to like fight with you and stuff like that. And I was just, I don't know why I didn't just buy it because I probably spent more than the $50 of what it cost me to go and buy it in the store. <laughs> Renting it because you could rent games for like $5 for seven days at Blockbuster at the time. This was in 98, summer of 98. Oh yeah, that makes sense. That area. So I think Azure Dreams is one of those one of those throwbacks. And it's funny because it, Azure Dreams, I, I was a Konami fan back in the day. Azure Dreams is a Konami game. So was Symphony of the Night, which we still haven't talked about. No, but got to get to that one. But when I played Metal Gear Solid, and so this ties into the question we we're talking about, you know, now about Metal Gear. When you play Metal Gear Solid and you fight Psycho Mantis, he reads your memory card. <sighs> and Azor Dreams and Castlevania are two of the games that he talks about. He's like, "You like Azor Dreams," and I loved that. I thought that was so cool, and I forgot that I even had that on my memory card and stuff like that. And it was like a throwback to that. So yeah, I recommend uh, Azor Dreams is one of those underrated games, and definitely my most rented PS One game for sure. Yeah, but let's talk about Metal Gear. Please. What What are your thoughts on Metal Gear Solid? That game blew my mind away. I mean, that game, I could not believe... When that game came out, I could not believe it. First of all, I just rushed out and bought it. Period. The end. I, even if I had money, I'd probably just put it on a credit card or something. You know? And it was everything that it was hyped up to be. I could not believe how good it was. But I can't... You already you brought it up now, and I can't get my mind past it now. That Psycho Mantis fight was maybe the most in- incredible experience I've ever had as a gamer. I'll say that. Period. The end. Like the fact of like having to fight this thing that was quote unquote reading your mind, and you had all the little nuances, like it said video instead of video, and it was reading your memory card and stuff. But actually having to take figure out to take your controller cord out and put it into another port was like. My, my I, I'm not even over dramatizing that. Like that was, I couldn't believe the creativity and the the sheer genius of that. That was just like what just happened in gaming. I cannot believe what just happened. That I will always be 
a follower of Hideo Kojima because of that game and specifically that moment. He never had to do another thing in his life. You know, I mean, this is one of the most brilliant men in video games. For He's hailed as he's hailed for a reason. That was unbelievable to me. I mean, there was there's other th- moments in gaming that blew blew my mind. I know we talked about the double the ending of Double Dragon in the arcade where you had to fight each other. You know those those kind of moments where your mind was blown. But that fight with Psycho Mantis was just breathtaking. I, the creativity, the, everything about that game, every detail, every new that was the first game. I would say that was the first game that had that level of detail and thoughtfulness. In every aspect. It was just. There was so much nuance and subtlety to that game. And you know. That genre of. You know having that stealth genre of game. It was brand new. And there were other things doing it. Or there was elements of that. In other games leading up to that. But this. Nothing did it like that game. I mean that game was absolutely brilliant. From A to Z. From the beginning to the end. The only game. The only Metal Gear game that I, f- I remember maybe just as fondly is Snake Eater. That was another game that was like, I feel like Hideo Kojima and his people were taking it to the next level. I feel like they always had, you know, they, you want to talk about a creative man and a creative team that never rested on their laurels and really went out to create something special every single time they did something. You know, I can't talk about that enough, you know. That's why I'm hoping Death Stranded, Death Stranding is like the thing that is going to be the next thing that blows our minds, you know. He's completely capable of that. So, you know, that, I would say, I would say Metal Gear Solid might be the most important PlayStation game. There's our beloved games, and then there's a game like Final Fantasy VII and Symphony of the Night. And the Tony Hawks, and there's a lot of games that are, that were, that were just mind blowing, and they're gonna be these games are gonna be on your list of favorite games all time, but Metal Gear Solid might be the top at the top of that list. Where do you stand on that? What do you have to say about that game? Yeah, I mean, I I vividly remember playing it, and it was one of those games that I couldn't stop playing, and it, I agree with you. The Psycho Mantis fight is so clever. Oh my god, and. It's it's so it's literally twenty years old now, so we're not spoiling anything, I guess. But yeah, sorry the, if I'm spoiling. Psycho, I, I, I mean, I, I, you have to you know played it by now. You have, you had twenty years to play it. The the fight like Psycho Mantis is uh is a psychic, so he understand like if you just kept shooting at him, he would just dodge the bullets and 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 kind of taunt you and stuff like that. Yeah, and there was all and he would like yeah he would manipulate it would like make it look like he was turning your TV off and stuff like that and like there was all sorts of like weird really weird shit that it was super clever and and yeah taking the controller and putting it into the second port and then he's like i can't read you you know as like you're as like you're shooting at him or whatever it's so oh my god it's so cool like he's trying to like read you but he you're actually shooting him and, he, and he's like expressing it you know aloud it's so cool i'd be talking about thinking outside of the box i mean yeah i can't say enough about that i mean that's just so straight that's everything that i want something to be i mean that's getting your complete money's worth and i know that all of the games kind of are predicated on these really cool cast of villains. Or at least the first three are. Yeah, definitely. And I think Fat Man is still like my favorite. And he's in Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty, which is my favorite Metal Gear game. Good game. But 
when we can talk about that during the PS2 or just do a Metal Gear topic in the future. So I, I like him the most because I think he's just zany. He's, on, he's like an explosives expert that's just on the rollerblades. And he, he like made a nuclear bomb when he was like a teenager. It's like so it's like so weird. <laughs> and he drinks like wine. But Is that your favorite? Is yeah, that your I, like, favorite? I like him the most because I'm like, this is so weird. Wow. He's so weird, you know? But for for the ensemble cast in the original Metal Gear Solid is like unbeatable. Just the Revolver Ocelot, so good. Vulcan Raven, Sniper Wolf, Cyborg Ninja, Psycho Mantis. These are like really, really, really great villains. Like one after the other after the other. That game had such intrigue and such pacing. Yeah, and, and the enemies were fearsome. Mm-hmm. They really were. I didn't want to fight. Any, I didn't want to fight anything. Yeah. Like that, that was what I remember. And that's what I remember so clearly in the game was. I'm like, I don't want any, like, I know you, like, you're approaching the boss fight where you fight Vulcan Raven towards the beginning or you're fighting, you know, Revolver Ocelot in that room where you're running around the perimeter oh of it God, so because f- you can't shoot through the middle of it because it's, like, right. lined with explosives. It's so fun. And it it just, I was always harrowing. I was always like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> it's you know? anxiety. Yeah, it's like, it's super anxious. It's not like when you, we were kidding around playing Ninja Gaiden, the original on NES yesterday or two days ago, and I was just beating the shit out of the game. And it's like, there's no fear in that game for me because you know every corner of it and stuff like that. And I know Metal Gear Solid really intimately, but it's still one of those games where I'm like, I don't want to, I can't fight you right now. It's so, it, it just gives me so much anxiety. Oh. Like Sniper Wolf where you have to find the diazepam or something like that to like steady. Right. The, the, to the, study the your, yeah. yeah. So you could take a, a steady shot. Shot. Oh, wow. That, that's so inventive. Oh my God. I can't say enough. I mean, coming off of like what we knew Metal Gear Solid coming off of what we knew of Metal Gear, you had talked about this game a little bit already, but the Metal Gear game, the Metal Gear games, there was two Metal Gear games for NES. They, they were good games, but this was such a dramatic departure. This was everything. This was just taking it to like levels and levels and levels past. And every game should have this amount of craft and thoughtfulness and inventiveness and try to do something new and try to... You know, just try to be, just try to, this is a game that furthers the art of video game making. This is a game that if you want to have the ridiculous question of whether video games are art or not, just, oh yes, Metal Gear Solid, the end, like, of course, I mean, I hate that question anyway, of course it's art, but yeah, it's, you know, is filmmaking an art? I mean, Hideo Kojima, I mean, who... Who but Hideo Kojima? Seriously, he's the most brilliant man in video games. I mean, there's one, there's another brilliant man in video games, but the, if you take Shigeru Miyamoto and Hideo Kojima, who else? Those two are. That's it. You know what I mean? He's that game. Just I can't say enough about that first game. It's like even remembering it now, it's like holy, sh- like it, it's it's breathtaking how much special it is compared to almost every other game of that era. You know, every other every other developer at every other company must have been like, forget it. Like, I quit. Like, there's not. What are we gonna? Do? How can we top this? You know, it's it's an it's an exercise in 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 brilliance. I like how it didn't try to sell itself either with snazzy box art. The box art was just white. And yeah, it just, and it just said Metal Gear Solid Tactical Espionage Action on it. That's all it said. Good point. Understated. And and it was it just sold itself. I think they just sold it basically. Being like, you're gonna hear about it and you're gonna want it. Yeah, you're gonna. <laughs> And everyone did. Everyone, even the most casual video game players I knew in high school, everyone played that game. Elegant. Like that's a game. That's a touchstone for a lot of people. That game is a touchstone for people that were very casual to the very hardcore. Yeah. The final game that I want to talk about, Dagan, okay. and you can you can th- jump in if you have anything else you want to talk about after please, this. Please. Is uh, we mentioned it several times, but Castlevania Symphony of the Night, another Konami game. Now this is a game 
unlike I think most of the other games we've talked about, although people might disagree, this is a game you can make the case is the best PlayStation game, and you can make the case that this is the best game of all time. A lot now, of people I don't, do. I, now I don't. I don't know that I'd make the case that it's necessarily the best. I think you can easily make the case it's the best PS One game. I think you could pretty easily make the case it's the best game of all time too. It's certainly one of my favorite games of all time. It's immaculate. It's and I agree. <laughs> I remember buying it. This was one of the weird disconnects I had with PSM is that I don't remember seeing it in the magazine too much because PSM launched like the summer of 2007 or 1997. So by the time the game came out in the fall of 97, there wasn't that much like the first cover was Final Fantasy 7, etc. and so on. I remember seeing it in the store and having heard that there was a new Castlevania game coming out, but not knowing anything about it. So I bought it. I was like, yeah, of course. Okay. I love Castlevania. I own every Castlevania game. Yeah. I obviously buy this. <laughs> right. I have. No questions. Yeah, I have. I have the first three on NES. I have Super Castlevania. I have. You know, Bloodlines, I have all, you know, the Game Boy ones, Castlevania Adventures. And I'm like, yeah, of course I'm going to buy Castlevania. Someday we have to get a PC Engine and get Rondo of Blood. Sure. They, we have to. They, they they released Rondo of Blood on something. Oh, it's on Virtual Console. Yeah, that's what it yeah. is, I think. I sh- I sh- and maybe won. PSP as well. It might be It might be in Castle. It might be in Dracula X as an unlockable, but I don't remember. Oh, you might be right. Symphony of the Night's in there as an unlockable, too. Okay. But that game, I, d- I thought I was going to get a Castlevania game, like a real Castlevania game. Or a classic Castlevania. Classic, game. yeah. So like a linear, gothic, hard as nails, side scroller. And what we got instead was a hard as nails, open world, non-linear Metroid style game. This is where Metroidvania comes from. Right. And it is a ten in every respect. Agreed. The art is some of the most beautiful pixel art I've ever seen in my life. It's gorgeous. There's so many little touches in it, and the inverted castle hold, like fake ending thing, is like like that blew my mind. Oh, that's mind blowing. So, what do you remember about Symphony of the Night? Just completely blown away. First of all, we were jonesing for a 2D game during that era when it looked like you could even almost to like the point of panic, being like, "Is there ever going to be another 2D game again?" Like, you know, it's going so in the direction of 3D and CG and open world and you know, polygons and everything. It, it was like, when this game came out, I was like, oh my, the, there's not only is this a 2D game, a 2D hand-drawn game, but it's the most gorgeous one ever done. I mean, this game was so striking on every level. Like you already mentioned, the art is beautiful. The animation is the most gorgeous, fluid. The gameplay, I mean, for it's a Metroidvania game and it's different, but it just... Just to call it for a second, a 2D platformer, it is the most immaculate 2D platform game ever created. It is pixel perfect. The gameplay is pixel perfect. From the hitboxes to the fluidity of the motions, the timing, everything. The game is perfect. The game is ever... It, this is a lot of people's favorite video game of all time for a reason. This is a one... This game. If you guys haven't played this game, this is the first game you need to go out right now and find a way to play it. Yeah, there's a lot of... So for people that are curious, there are a lot of ways to play it. So... They did release it on Xbox 360, so you can play it that way. And so you could, therefore, I think, play it on Xbox One as long as it's one of the backwards compatible games. Which right, exactly. Is. So you might be able to pass it through, but if not, play it on Xbox 360. Right, right. You can play it on PS1. You can play it on PSP. You can play it on PS3 as a PS1 classic. So there's a lot of different ways for you to experience it. It's also on Saturn if you for right, some exactly, reason, yeah. have this. And the Saturn version, you can play as Maria in it. So, oh, you can? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And, and she I think throws the doves as, and everything like yeah, that? Yeah, I think you could play as Richter in the PS1 version. I mean, yes, Richter, you like, can. You, you can. play as Richter in the beginning of the game, but I mean, you could play as Richter, I think, through that once you beat it. And yeah, I think Maria you play as in the Saturn version. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's cool to know. Yeah. I want to get a Saturn. 
want to get a Japanese Saturn. No, you don't. <laughs> I really do. I know. You're not the Sega guy. We could argue about that later. But yeah, that game, yeah, I mean, I'm glad we're bringing it up towards the tail end because that game is very, very important. And I mean, again, it's sort of like, you know, it makes your heart like kind of pine for the the Konami of old, you know? Yeah, what they they essentially started annualizing that system from... Symphony of the Night in 97, they revisited it with Circle of the Moon. That wasn't until 2001, so there was a bit of a gap. But then from Circle of the Moon until, I think, Order of Ecclesia is the last one in 2008, there were like seven of them that were... People were like, oh, what's the best one on GBA or DS? And I'm like, dude, I can't even tell them apart. Like, they might as well be Madden games. Oh, that's and, funny. And, and, I, and I like... I, if you put them all in front of me, I'm like, I don't know. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And because they're all awesome. I lo- I'm in love with all of them. So I love all of them. And... They're all a little different. Some of them are a little more controversial than others because of the combat systems and stuff. There's one in particular, I think it's Ecclesia, that you use like enemy attacks instead of like your own weapons. Which oh, is, that's which interesting. Turn people off. I liked it. You have to actually turn their attacks back on them and reflect you, them back. No, like you absorb their attacks, so like you can like like you fight like you randomly get access. That to That sounds attacks. cool in theory. Yeah, I thought it was cool too, but it's a little little more it's convoluted different. than than the straightforward nature of like yeah, a, yeah. The, the role playing elements of it. Okay. Sym- Symphony of the Night. First of all, Alucard is so cool. Alucard is Dracula's son. He's half human, half vampire. It's Dracula spelled backwards. And he was first introduced in Castlevania 3, which is one of our favorite games of all time, too, on NES. And he is so interesting, I guess is the word I want to talk, talk, say in the game. You were talking about the animations. The animation when he steps, like when you dash backwards and he's like, and he like flourishes backwards, it's like so beautiful yeah the overlap with the cape mm. and the hair and he's just an, an, a great character richter is really cool in it richter belmont who you see dracula i love the beginning of it the the one complaint about it is that the sound the voices are really compressed because of the the space on the cd so there's like a really famous interaction with richter and dracula in the beginning of the game and then later there's like an interaction with alucard and shaft and there's interactions with like alucard and the librarian and stuff that are all like really low compression audio that doesn't sound right similar to like Mega Man but it's actually well delivered it just doesn't sound good you're damn right <laughs> oh different shit yeah, yeah different okay. shit yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't just call him death but <laughs> that was weird a little weird but probably two different characters I don't really know the the when you the game starts I think at the end of Rondo of Blood I think that's right so you're playing Rondo of I think it's Rondo of Blood's ending where Richter's fighting Dracula and Dracula's slouched in his throne room, like on his throne. And it's so, it's just such a, I would love to see it remade like in beautiful graphics where he's drinking wine out of a glass and like Richter just walks in and he just doesn't even move and they're just talking to each other and he eventually throws his glass. And, um, you know, Richter's like, you're not of this world. Die, demon. <laughs> you know, nice, and, that was good. Yeah, and, and my God, that sounded per- almost perfect. And Dracula's like, how about you? You know, and, and, and like throws the glass, and like you just see it shatter with the wine on the ground, and then he like, and then he, I think he like teleports to like the Dracula. I'm not like a huge fan of Bram Stoker. Or like I actually like the Dracula. I like the book Dracula. I think it's super scary, and you can see where they get a lot of the Eastern European influence from that. Like everything about it, actually, if you read it. It's sure, really cool. absolutely. If you're a fan of Castlevania and you've not read Dracula, you actually should because it's you can see where it comes from. But they they humanize Dracula in a way that Castlevania was never really able to do, because. In the previous Castlevania games, the character came from the Belmonts. 
and the environmental storytelling. And in Castlevania 2, it came from the townspeople and from whatever else. But you didn't really get... You just fought Dracula at the end. He didn't have, like, a personality. Right. And in this, they gave him, like, a personality, gave him gravitas. And, like, he was a, he was a, he was a character. Absolutely. And you, like, had a reason to go after him. Yeah. So if you're a fan of the series, it really gave it more nuance. Right, exactly. It was really cool. And the other thing that obviously is seminal in the game is that there's a fake ending in the game. So you play the game for 10 hours or so, and, and, and you're filling in, very similar to Metroid, you're filling in, like, a map that you can see, and the map's, like, filling in gigantic castles. There's, like, all sorts of, you know, including parts of the, that you would recognize. From the old games. Sure. Which is, again, I love that kind of throwback. It's the same thing I was saying in a previous episode about how you played through Castlevania 2, Castlevania 1's first stage in Castlevania 3. I love that. Because it's like, oh, you're yeah. back. It's great. It's yeah. such a thoughtful touch. Right. It's to seems lazy, them. but it's not. Yeah. In the, in the grand scheme of things. It's right. not no, lazy at all. It's the opposite, it's awesome. yeah. And so, if you wear certain glasses when you fight Dracula at the end, or when you, actually you're fighting Richter, you, there's a thing above his head that you attack instead. And this, like, shatters the spell that he's under with Dracula. And then the castle turns upside down. It's called the Inverted Castle. And you play through the entire game again. It's totally different. Like, there are different enemies, different locations. But you're literally going through the castle upside down. And it and from a design perspective, a video game design perspective, when you go and play the game again from the beginning and you look around, you're like, holy shit. Everything in this game was designed to be turned upside down. Every piece of it. Like, so you're in, like, the church spire, and there's, yeah. like, all these things, and you're like, oh, my God, like, those are platforms. Now the chandeliers are platforms. Right, and all those kinds of things, and it's it's so, so not only from a graphical perspective, not only from a gameplay perspective, both immaculate, but from a design perspective, it's a very thoughtful game. That was when Iga got his start and got his hands on Castlevania and, made, right. and made it the best, he produced that game. It's when he, it, it, that's when Castlevania became... The, Castlevania was already awesome. Yeah. And that's when they made Castlevania even more awesome. Yeah. It became something different, but still very awesome. And I do not understand. It must have to do with the sales. But I do not understand why Konami just pretends that this never happened. Like, for the last 10 years, they have not given us one of these games. And they've given us two... You know, they gave us technically three Castlevania games. Technically four, actually, because there was that weird online Castlevania game. But they gave us the... um, The... Lords of Shadow games. The first one's fine, but the second one sucks. Yeah. And they gave us that really bad 3DS game, all by Mercury Steam, who doesn't belong anywhere near Castlevania. No, I agree. So that really, it is. it does make sense that we're wrapping up this podcast with Symphony of the Night because it's so very good and absolutely one of the best games of all time. And I and I say that with authority. Like, I, it's one of my favorite games of all time, but I, I think that, like, it's almost a, an objective view that Castlevania Symphony of the Night is one of the best games. Yeah, how can you not... How can you not include that in you know your top game, right? It's just like yeah, and it was so. I it also again to reiterate, like it was so special when it came out too, because it put two. It kept. I feel like it kept two D gaming on. If something was going to keep two D gaming on the map, it was going to be that game. You know, it's like you know. I think everybody had to take another look. Devs, gamers, everybody would be like, oh yeah, two D gaming is still relevant. Two D game. You know, who knows what where would where two D gaming would have went had that game not come out. And had the impact that it had. It was so beautifully done. It wasn't a half-assed, you know, a half-assed effort in any regard. It was just, like you said, so beautifully thought through, and art directed, and directed, and designed. And it's just, it's huge. Yeah, it's just. Who could say enough about that game? It's and a I must. Think it's, must one play. Of, it's one of the examples. So it is a must play. It's one of the examples too. And I, this is a little more contentious. Like I was never a huge fan of Super Metroid. Like I. 
Samus is way too big. Yeah, maybe you're and, telling me that. And it's her I, sprites big. Yeah, like she's way too big on the screen. It's the same thing with Mega Man Seven and Eight. Like why? Well, Seven really was like, why is he so big? Yeah, because they wanted to like utilize the extra resolution and stuff like that on the game. But the but the but the actual four three resolution of the game never changed. So right, it you, you, you don't have as much room. To, you have just as much room to work with. Exactly. So it was a mis- I think a design mistake. But I I think that game makes Super Metroid look fucking pedestrian. Like that that's like really like my opinion on it. Yeah, it was clearly inspired by it. And that's great. Yeah. But when you go back and play Super Metroid and then you play Symphony of the Night, it's like one game is way better than the other. Clearly better. Yeah. And yeah, so I'll take that to my fucking grave. Agreed, my friend. All right, that's it. We've gone for a long time, so I'm going to wrap this up. Do you have anything else you want to finish on? I do. I think we have to just do one more. Do you mind? Sure. But no, we I'm, have I don't to mind at all. per wrap this. Oh, of course. Up. Oh, very good. We cannot, we cannot of course, of course. per wrap this up without talking about this game, my friend. So talk to me. I remember, so I got Parappa the Rapper for Christmas when okay. I was in eighth grade. Okay. And I remember that because you all were in New Hampshire for that year. It was a weird year. I remember that. And so I, that year I got Tomb Raider 3, Parappa the Rapper, and like Tactics Ogre or something like that. And Good memory. It was... It's a short game. You can beat it in like a half an hour or less. But it's so unique and strange. And it's weird because... It was one of those games that they never recaptured. Like the Umjammer Lammy was good, but it never it, it was it didn't recapture the the, the the special nature of it. Yeah, no. And Parappa the Rapper two was bad. Like I, I I can't believe they charged fifty dollars for that game. Yeah, that was a that was a shame. And I remember buying that with Ali when I was in high school. Okay, I think I was in twelfth grade, and I was so excited to get it because I didn't even read any reviews. Like, I'm like, oh, it's causing me, and it was so bad. It was so dumb. This game is the most maybe the most charming and delightful game ever made. Uh, you can't even put if you if there's people out there who haven't played this game it's very hard to put into words I think it's it's definitely the first rhythm game I played is it the first rhythm game you've ever played Kyle that you ever played up to I that I might point? have played DDR before that in like an arcade or something okay maybe not I wasn't a DDR guy so I don't I don't know maybe, it, it's possible yeah it falls in pretty close in any event sure but the the level of charm and the level of joy and delight in this game. First of all, it is easy to beat once you get the hang of it, but it's at the learning curve. It's difficult at first. I remember, you know, this game was pretty difficult. Once you get the hang of it, it's a lot of fun. And I think the learning curve is very, whether intended or not intended, the learning curve is very... It, it's really... It lends to the sense of fun of the game because it's not too hard. You, you you feel yourself progressing as you get a little more acclimated to what's going on and pressing the buttons on time and what you could do. And the extra things you could do, the extra button pressing and everything like that. But just really delightful, really memorable, those special like 2D paper graphics. The songs are very catchy. It's very, very silly and goofy and light. It felt like nothing else I ever played before. And it was very, I think if somebody was trying to explain it to me, around the time it came out and was saying you could really play this game, I'm not sure what I would have thought. It's one of those games you have to sit down and experience for yourself. It's just pure fun, you know, and it really is striking to think about juxtaposed against a lot of the heavier content that's out, that's, you know, Assassin's Creed and all, you know, all the all the many numerous popular games that are out, you know, the Bloodborne games and Uncharted and Last of Us and all the games that are really much that the content's very heavy, you get very invested, it's anxiety inducing. This is just a light, cartoony, plug and play experience. And you're right, it was never replicated. The magic and charm of the first 
the the first Parappa the Rapper game was never replicated. It was never duplicated. It's really interesting. We we uh, downloaded. I was trying to explain to the kids about Parappa the Rapper, and it wasn't on PlayStation Network to get. So I said, "Oh, we'll get home Gemma Lammy," and I had never played it, but I figured it's it's cute, but it's nowhere near. You were right. You're right. Different. Yeah, it's just it's different. it's not it's nowhere near the you know that that initial charm of the first game. It's right. just really really fun. It is. It's excellent. And definitely in my. Definitely, I would say that game's in my top five PlayStation games of all time, if not my top ten. Do you want to tell? You want to say what your top five are real quick? Sure, I would have to. Yeah, I think off the top of my head, it yeah. would be something like Symphony of the Night, yeah, Wild Arms, Metal Gear Solid, Final Fantasy Nine, Final Fantasy Tactics. Wow, that's a good list. That's a really good list. Yeah, something like that. Tactics we never even got a chance to talk about. But yeah. I could do I could do a five part episode on that, so we should probably, probably just say that. Yeah. What are yours? Yeah, you know, mine's similar. I would say for my top five, it's very I mean, honorable mentions, Parasite Eve, Resident Evil Two, Twisted Metal Two, I think was probably my favorite. Tony Hawk. Gran Turismo two, I really enjoyed. Silent Hill. I would say the first two Silent Hill games are excellent. Uh, this I, I'm really fond of, the, especially the first. They they are both excellent, but I'm really fond of the first one, Mega Man X4. But I think X4 my is good. I think my favorite, my top five will be Wild Arms, Final Fantasy VII, Metal Gear Solid, Symphony of the Night, obviously, and Parappa. No, yeah, that's not a bad list at all. And Parappa, yeah, uh, Parappa, yeah, it's a, it's a great game. I wish it was a little meatier, but it was about the experience and like getting the higher scores and yeah, and just something really different. Unlocking the freestyles that you can do in each. That's right. Yeah, I forgot up. about that. Keep, Punches all in the <laughs> If it was twice as long, it would have been amazing, yeah. right? If you want to ask me, I'll show you a fine. The things I teach you are sure to beat you. But nevertheless, you'll get a lesson from teacher. Now kick. <laughs> kick? <laughs> That's all. It's like punch. What do you punch think? We're going to do lightning back. round? Yeah, let's do lightning round. Okay, lightning round. This will tie right into what we were just talking about. All right, so let's do this. Remember, no wrong answers. Speed round, no wrong answers. That you know of. <laughs> Until you tell me what's right or wrong after every question. Okay, so here we go. You ready? Yes. Chop Chop Master Onion or Instructor Mussolini? Oh, Chop Chop. You're Iconic. Cor- you're correct. Cloud or Sephiroth? Cloud. I don't like. I don't really like Sephiroth that much. I don't think he's not that a big Sephiroth he's, guy. He's like. I don't think he's like Kefka's are like way more interesting. Yeah, okay, so this might speak in. This might speak to the next one then. One Winged Angel or any other video game track ever. A one-winged angel is okay. Like amazing. All right, you agree. Amazing. On I mean, that that's one. an iconic. Oh, so good. That's an icon. I mean, tomorrow. <laughs> it's like it's it's like orchestral. It's amazing. That Final Fantasy, just real quick. That Final Fantasy VII boss fight, and when he does, what is it, Comet? That Sephiroth throws when he goes through the entire solar system, counting down from Pluto to Earth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it Comet? Or is it Meteor? Yeah, Meteor maybe, I think. Right? Yeah, that think. whole thing just with the tied in with the music, that whole package was also another mind-blowing event. You know, I would just play that boss fight just to watch that. You know, it was so good. Okay. Uh, this is a deep cut. Shiva or Ifrit? I'll go with Ifrit just because I like fire more than Yeah, good, good answer. Bahamut Zero or Ruby Weapon? Bahamut Zero, just because You're not that was, other than Knights of the Round, was like a really powerful I love that summon. One. All right, you're, uh, you're correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
Psycho Mantis or Revolver Ocelot? Psycho Mantis, definitely. Revolver Ocelot's awesome, and he's he plays really he's really important in the entire series. But Psycho Mantis, that's right, he's threaded through. Psycho Mantis is, I think, in the newest one too. Oh, is he really? Or someone just like him? Yeah, I don't know much about the Metal Gear Solid Five lore because I could only take this time. You have to plug your controller into like your Switch or something, (laughs) like to somehow work that out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is a man? A pile of secrets. You're correct. <laughs> a miserable pile a of miserable secrets. A miserable pile of secrets. Uh, oh, man. I hope I don't butcher his name. Nobu Uematsu or Beethoven? I mean, I'm going to go with Beethoven, but I, I like... But I That's like incorrect. That's incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it up to the, one of the great composers of all time, but I do like what, what, what Uematsu is doing. I'm going to answer this one for you. Okay. Because I, I know, damn well know the answer. Kefka or Sephiroth? Kefka. You're going Kefka. Kefka is probably my favorite gaming villain of all time. Of all time. Because what, what's... So we'll save it for the Final Fantasy VI episode that we'll inevitably do, but... We're definitely going to do that. He's not even... He... It's... Emperor Gestal is the bad guy in right. the game, and Kefka just basically is like, no... I'm gonna, like Gestalt's like if like in the land of the espers and stuff is like more hesitant about what they're doing with Magitek armor and stuff like that. Okay, and Kefka's like, no, we're just gonna get to do this. <laughs> yeah, what is he like? The jet? He's like, like the, the court, court jester. jester, right? It's amazing. And when they released Final Fantasy Chronicles or Anthology, whichever one had six, I can't keep them straight. And they did the pre-rendered opening that we never saw before, and you see him like, and he's a clown. Yeah, like you you kind of got that vibe from him and from the art, obviously. Yeah, but he's like just a he's just a fucking psychopath. That's awesome, and it's so like he's nuts. And the laugh, of course, the laugh, like the digitized sixteen. Yeah, bit. I love that. <laughs> oh, it's so. It's... And you like hear it off screen, like you wouldn't even hear him, or whatever. <laughs> you like see him, it's like so awesome. Oh, what a great villain! Oh, we're definitely gonna get to him. We're definitely gonna get to that. Uh, cartridge or CD disc slash disc. I mean, disc gave us way more than the cartridge did, but the cartridge are, of course, in nostalgia lives in my heart that's true that's you're you're correct uh mega man x or zero i i don't like zero like you're not I, a zero I, guy yeah uh, so zero was supposed to be the protagonist of the game i just found that out recently he was supposed to be mega man yes yeah, like it was yeah he was supposed to be like yeah the new mega man and there's some and executive at like, no, capcom japan was like no yeah they're, they're like no inafune <laughs> you can maybe not do that <laughs> So yeah, Zero's cool, but I never, I never really understood. It, he's similar to Proto Man, but not as cool as Proto Man. So it's like we already have it. It's like, um, it's like the episode of Seinfeld where they have the Bizarro group of friends. Yeah, and they're like, but we already have a George. Oh, that's a good one. I forgot about that. So one. it's like we are, we already, yeah. we already have a George. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm gonna skip some of these. Uh, I'm gonna go Dracula or Alucard. Alucard. Okay, Ratchet or Clank. It's a PS2 game, but Ratchet. I'm going to go Crash Bandicoot or an actual cool mascot. <laughs> I hate Crash Bandicoot. Yeah, Crash Bandicoot sucks. Just for the record. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know where people stand on Crash Bandicoot, but I never liked him. Well, they, there was a lot of excitement when he came back when they, re, you know, Activision finally relented and, and released the three, you know, the three games on PS4. Okay. And they're all redone. They're beautiful. And I actually downloaded it and played it. A friend of mine at Sony gave me a code. So I just, like, on a whim this past summer, downloaded them and started playing the first one. And I'm like, nope, just as bad as I remember. Really? I don't get why anyone would like those games. But yeah, they're, more it's, power to, they're, it, it's just, it's one of those situations where there are so many better games like this. So why this? Why this one? Yeah. Why this game? I hear you. You're correct, by the way. Thank you. So PS One era Capcom or Konami? This is a tough. That's tough. This is a tough. Konami, one. I think, in that in that era, I think Konami. 
You're correct. That's incredible to say, but I, you know, you're talking about like Metal Gear Solid and Castlevania Symphony of the Night versus what? How can you? Yeah, Resident I mean, Evil, Mega Resident Man X4. Evil. Right. There's there's good and X5 is good too, but there's but there's also Mega Man Eight. It's hard to go knowing what we know now. It's hard to go Konami over. Yeah, but Capcom, Konami was but really dominant. But you have to. Yeah, do, they have were to. dominating at that time. You're correct. PlayStation or N64? Play, I mean PlayStation, please. 3D fighting games or mow the lawn? Mow the lawn. 3D fighting games or food poisoning? Food poisoning. You're correct. <laughs> Hideo Kojima or Walt Disney? Kojima wasn't racist, so we're going to go with him. Oh, nice. You're correct. Hideo Kojima or Shigeru Miyamoto? Miyamoto. Wow, really? Okay. All I, right. I, so. I like it. I don't think you're wrong. Uh, Kojima's a little one note. All right. Okay. All He's right. He's known for one series. Well, you have, you know... You have police knots. You have and you have and you have zoning and you have but, enders but, and you have. But he, he I'll, I'll reiterate. He's known for one series because <laughs> <laughs> no one really gives a flying bug about police knots. And what's zone. the other? Not the, there's another one. What am I forgetting? Zoning enders. Zoning the enders. Yes, police knots. Yes, but there's another one. Snatcher. Snatcher. Of course. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Okay. But no. I mean. But yeah. But you're right. Please. You're not wrong. <laughs> please. Uh, okay. We'll just wrap it up. Lara Croft or Jill Valentine. I like Jill Valentine better. Jill Sandwich. I do. <laughs> Resident Evil or Silent Hill? At that time, I would say Silent Hill was probably actually stronger. But ultimately, Resident Evil. I you know, Resident Evil. There's nothing in the Silent Hill franchise that touches Resident Evil Four. So you're correct. But on the P- in the PS One era, I would take Silent Hill One and Two over Resident Evil One, Two, and Three. One yeah. and Two. Three. I think so. And Three. You know, the the, the seminal version of three, three is on Dreamcast. So. Oh, that's right. Okay, last one. Final Fantasy VI or Final Fantasy VII? Oh, my God. Six. Okay. That, six, that, yeah. that, that would be like um, six would win on almost any comparison. Yeah, that's of true. Of anything. Not just. It's a tough one. It's like Final Fantasy VI or sustenance. <laughs> all right. Well, we appreciate you all listening to us. Dang, and thank you for the lightning round. Thank oh, you for joining me on this episode. Remember, you can follow us on social media. On Twitter, I'm at NoTaxation. Dagan is at Dagan1973. That's D-A-G-A-N 1973. You can follow us on Instagram. I'm at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is at Dagan Likes to Draw. Remember, this show is supported on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you like what we're doing, please do consider going over there and throwing us a few bucks a month. It really does help us sustain CLS as an endeavor. Without you guys, these shows simply would not exist. And that doesn't only go for this show. It goes for Fireside Chats, the interview series, and Side Quest, the YouTube series about video games as well. So please, please do consider it if you can afford it. If not, no big deal. Enjoy the content for free. We'll see you next time on Knockback. Dagan, thank you. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 <laughs> Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Ahmed Alois, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, David Buford, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burry, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancado, Matthew Canoy, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Jay Chandarlis, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Dan Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Philip Crone, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanikos, Mitchell Durkash, Luke Drake, David Ellis, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fior, Connor Gassian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, David Gurley, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Stephen Insler, Josh Yeager, 
Paul Joyce, Benjamin Kane, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Jackson Lastiqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mutkar, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nixch, Andrew O., Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Etanogenis Rojas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, James Schmetz, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Rayan Shinebarger, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, Alex Simmons, Riley Smith, Jordan Smith, Gerard Stuave, Alexander Suarez, Ahmed Tamar, Tam Tran, Kevin Van Eekeren, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Chris Wong, Michael Wells, Payne White, Tyler Woodall, Benjamin Worrell, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Madmock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Chris, Donk 2015, and Random Guy Radio.